All your base are belong to us. Hello, and welcome to Fake Geek Girls, a podcast looking at nerdy pop culture from both a fan and critical perspective, encouraging the things we love to do better. I'm Missy, I'm a writer, and if you hear me accidentally refer to Quantum of Solace as Quantum of Shoelace, no you didn't. I'm Mary, I'm a marketer, and Missy ruined that name for me before I even watched any Bond movies. So, the we today are talking today. about... Today. Today on this podcast. On this podcast. I'm going to. <laughs> In this essay, I will... Uh, we are finally finishing the James Bond series. And you know what? We finished with a bang. It, truly. Quite um, literally. Quite literally. Uh, we are wrapping up the Bond series with covering all of the Daniel Craig Bond films. So that is five films ranging from 2006 to 2021. That's, That's crazy. 15 years. Poor, like, I can see why it was, it's hard for Daniel Craig to let go. Yeah. Um, he was a good Bond. He was a good Bond. And he's I, an executive producer on the last one. Is he an executive producer on the others? Oh, I don't know. Um, so this covers Casino Royale, which is an adaptation of the first Bond book of the same name. Uh, Quantum of Solace, Skyfall, Spectre, and No Time to Die. Man, they just prepared you for um, this new Bond with uh, Casino Royale. Yeah. They're just like, let me show you. <laughs> let me show you what it's going to be like. Um, so... This is an interesting... We'll get into it. But I thought this was an interesting era. I did not like Daniel Craig's Bond as much. Uh, he's not my favorite Bond. But I really like Daniel Craig. Yeah. I would I would say that he actually... I think he is my favorite Bond. Um, because I think his character... Not just his character, but like Daniel Craig's... How he plays the character evolves. Yeah. And he, like, by the time we get to the last movie, I truly like James Bond. Yeah. I have I have mixed feelings. I don't like how serious Casino Royale is. But I, I liked it. I like Skyfall because I think that the the way that it the direction it takes in the end is very interesting. It's, so, it's a haunted house movie. Yeah, I like it's just home alone. Yeah, it is. It's just home alone. And it's I like so good. I like that direction for it. Uh Quantum of Solace and Spectre are both really dull. Quantum of Solace had so much potential. It, it could have been so cool. Yeah. But No Time to Die is de- is probably a top five Bond film I for think me. That's if we're only looking at the canon ones, that's probably my favorite. If it was looking it, at all of them, the original Casino. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it it was de- it was a really strong movie in my opinion. Um we'll talk more about it later because it's not flawless, but um I thought it was if you if you're looking for a Bond film and you like Bond films. You can't go wrong with No Time to Die, is it's my true. opinion. It's not... If you don't like Bond films, I don't think it's going to do it for you. I don't know. I Well, it's hard for me to say because I feel like even if I didn't watch them, I would have enjoyed myself with that. It had it took my heart's heartstrings. Mm-hmm. It had some, you know, that good, weird junk science. Mm-hmm. But maybe that's just me. I just think... I don't think it's going to sell anybody on the idea of James Bond if they're not already somewhat yeah. on board with James Bond. Well, I feel like if you went to that and you're like, I'm going to watch all the James Bonds now, you might be a little disappointed. Yes. Don't start and then decide to go backwards because yeah, no, you're going to be let down. Um, but first, let's talk a little bit about the history of of Craig as Bond. Um, so Craig 
was a controversial choice for James Bond for a variety of reasons. Um, other people considered for the role included Hugh Jackman, Clive Owen, and Ewan McGregor. Interesting. I would have loved to see any of them. Yeah, it would have been good. And I think each one would have been totally different. I think Clive Owen would be my number one choice. Really? I, I don't know much about Clive Owen. I really like Clive Owen. He's excellent in Shoot 'em Up, oh. the greatest action movie. Um, and also Children of Men. So he can do the really serious thing and he can do That's the serious right. comedy thing. It's interesting because all these people, including, as we found out, Daniel Craig, are all people who can do humor really well. Yeah. And that's, I think, one of the biggest flaws of the Daniel Craig era is that they didn't let him be funny. Daniel Craig is really funny. They let him play around at the end. Yeah. There's a few jokes and that kind of thing. But, like, Daniel Craig is legit really good oh, at comedy. He's so funny. Um, and I think one of the things that, that that I didn't like about the Craig films was just that they didn't let him lean into that. When he is... It, it's You know what it reminds me of is... Um, how a lot of directors treated Chris Hemsworth for a while mm. where they're like, okay, stand there and look pretty. And it's yeah. like, no, he's very funny. Like, let him funny. be funny. Um, Craig actually, oh, also a big point against Craig from longtime Bond purist was that he's blonde. Um, Jesus, criminy. I don't know why people care so much about people's hair color. They have to be very pure. It doesn't, it's what the same thing happened with. I mean, people oppose Keanu Reeves as as Constantine for a lot of reasons, but like one of them is that he has dark hair. Okay, but doesn't doesn't James Bond have blonde hair in that awful no. '80s one? No, he doesn't. No, James in the books he is described. So you know Archer, the show. Yes, the animated show. Yes, literally that is exactly how James Bond uh, is described in the book. Like down to having the little. It's described what? as a comma. I was just saying in the movies. I don't think there was any Bond who was blonde. Was They've it? all been brunette. Maybe it's just his his hair was so bad that it's just standing up for me. <laughs> um, what was that one in the eighties called? Which one? The one with um, what's her name? The really awesome lady. Are you thinking of View to a Kill? Yes. I think you're thinking of uh, Christopher Walken. I think I might be. Not Roger Moore. You know what? I might be. Roger Moore has brown hair, and sometimes it's a little bit lighter. But he you is he is a brunette. Um, so Craig actually said. Uh, of this role when he was cast for it. One of the things I was criticized for was that I looked like a bad guy, but I was happy with that because I think true good guys have to step into the dark side to do their job. I wanted people to question Bond's morals and his judgment. Uh, and I, I honestly kind of see where that is coming from. I, just the appearance of Daniel Craig is like somebody who I feel like he works for a living. <laughs> I don't know how else to put it, but I feel like he works for a living. See, and I think I was thinking about that. And I think that it, it, it is almost like the perfect lady you talk about, like a remix, right? Instead of a yeah. remix. I think it's the perfect remix of, um, what's his name? The original Sean Connery. Yeah, I think it's the, I think it's like the perfect update and change. And mm -hmm. where, well, it still feels like the same kind of feel where it's like the working man. Yeah. Cause I also felt that Sean Connery gives me the vibe of works for a living. Yeah. Um, His hands have calluses. Yeah, for sure. And, so I find it I find it interesting. I, I understand where they're coming from with looks like a bad guy, but the only reason I think they say that is because Daniel Craig has a more lined face. Like he looks older, even mm -hmm. if he isn't actually older, just because of he has like a very lined face. Um, and having a, having any facial feature really in the Bond film <laughs> is usually a symbol of evil. So we'll talk about that a little bit later. Hugh but Jackman seemed like an obvious choice. Yeah, really. I again very funny. Yeah. Um, like it's, it's, I, and I get, I'm guessing that part of the reason Hugh Jackman was considered was because of the popularity of the X-Men films oh, at sure. the time. 
Um, so that's a whole different universe we could be living in. Um, I feel like it would be more like um, the last guy. I can't remember names. Pierce Brosnan. Pierce Brosnan. I agree. I agree. I think that um, Hugh Jackman and Pierce Brosnan are voice- both very handsome men. Like yeah. they are. They are handsome. And I thought I think they would have brought the same humor. I agree. Yeah, I think they probably would have been a little goofier because the person who chose Hugh Jackman would have made those kinds of movies, yeah. as opposed to the person who although, chose. Although, although the people writing the first few Craig films were the same people who worked on like Goldeneye. Yeah, but I feel like it's a, there, you can still have that like think like life has changed, and mm-hmm. I want to make something more serious because like the world's got felt more serious. Yeah. Um. So a big thing here in this era is that Eon after Eons, it's Eon Films. Uh, So Eon finally, after Eons, acquired the rights to Casino Royale, um, which is why we got Casino Royale finally getting a proper canon interpretation. Um, The film is actually a reboot of the franchise. Despite M's presence, it rewinds while still taking place in, in a modern time period, it rewinds back to the beginning of Bond's career. Um, they also got the rights back for Spectre after a long legal battle, hence the return of Blofeld and Spectre, the organization in notably the film Spectre. Um, so this was this period of James Bond was very much about getting back the rights to things that really characterized the early era of the films and also the books as well. Um, so as far as cultural context, we are finally into a world that Mary and I might actually remember to some degree. Yes. We're not in the 90s anymore when we were children. Yeah. When I was just watching Sabrina, the Teenage Witch cartoon. Yeah. Uh, the first Craig film came out in 2006, meaning we were just about to graduate high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, and therefore, we were at least marginally aware of what was going on I in the world. Definitely. I looked up the related states and I'm pretty sure I'm right. I definitely always confused Casino Royale with Ocean's Eleven. Oh, that's fair. Because I was like, which one are they in the casino? And to be fair, they're in a casino both. In, in both of them. <laughs> but uh, I always got them mixed up. So, so I started out just being like, I don't know what the fuck is going on. <laughs> um, we are also now in this time period looking at a post 9-11 world in a more dramatic way than 2002's Die Another Day. Uh, global surveillance is more of a well, well-known issue in this time period. Uh, we've got never-ending wars, all that kind of stuff. And that's really just America because we're American and that's what we know best from a historical standpoint because we were here living in it. Um, as far as Bond goes, it's been four years since the last Bond film because the last one came out in 2002 with Die Another Day. Uh, and since Brosnan was basically unceremoniously dumped from the role, um, nobody really knew what to expect from this new Bond series. Uh, rather than doing the usual kind of wink nudge approach to the new Bond, which like in on Her Majesty's Secret Service, they had this never happened to the other guy, that kind of thing. Um, the creators instead suggested that Casino Royale, which would be, you know, an adaptation of the first book in, in the Fleming series, would be a reboot of the franchise that begins with his iconic first mission against Le Chiffre at the Casino Royale. Um, obviously it's, it's changed, it's updated, but the, the idea of him going up against Le Chief is still like the, the core of the story. Um, one interesting thing. So I was reading, uh, I finally, I finally finished the two books I was reading on James Bond. Like it's been a time, uh, in license to thrill, uh, James Chapman suggests that a reboot, generally speaking, is something that you do to an ailing film franchise. And I was wondering how we, does that apply to Bond? Like is, do we feel that the franchise was ailing? 
I don't, I don't know. I don't think I know enough about like feelings at that time, but I could, what I could, my immediate reaction is maybe not the films were, but the, but the, um, mentality towards that type of mm-hmm. film was changing. Um, cause the world was changing and things were getting more serious. So could they still make that silly movie and hit the same way? Maybe that's what was that what was what was waning yeah i don't think so die another day was the highest grossing bond film to that point hmm. if you're not adjusting for inflation if you are adjusting for inflation it is the ninth highest grossing bond wow. movie out of about out of at that time about 20 movies hmm. so like i don't know that i'd call it ailing um but i think aging is an effective yeah effective term um especially as we're starting to get into this very serious era of pop culture where, I mean, it predates the MCU, which is not really serious, but, like, takes itself quite seriously. Like, I wouldn't describe the Marvel Universe as serious, right? That's not a word I would choose. But it takes itself seriously, you know? Um, but Batman Begins came out a year before. Um, and then you have, you know, the the emergence of all of these very serious pop culture films that before movies with that tone would have been probably more likely to be like Oscar bait. Whereas now that's just the tone of pop culture. Yeah. Um, go ahead. Much more serious stuff. And while still like really campy, also was like 300 came out in 2006. Yeah. And when did dark Knight come out? Dark Knight would have been 2008, 2008. So it's all just getting kind of much more, even the campy shit, like 300 mm-hmm. still felt very serious. And, and I remember when it came out, it was just like, a huge it's kind of like how i don't know how many people will remember but like when sin city came out mm-hmm. it was like this very much like oh we're taking shit seriously now. and those and those are all adaptations of 80s comics <laughs> like we're talking about adap- straightforward adaptations of 80s comics so i think that there is a real comparison to be made here between the environment of the 80s and the environment mm-hmm. of the early 2000s as far as like the tone of pop culture at that time um i mean even at a in its time, the Tim Burton Batman, and I think we talked about this in the in that era of the Bond movies, that Tim Burton Batman at its time was quite serious. Now it feels campy because we have Batman Begins and The Dark Knight to compare it to. But at the time, that was a serious take on Batman. Um, so I, I think we were kind of seeing in, in the early mid-2000s this re... Um, this are getting darker. Yeah, things were getting darker in tone. Unfortunately, mm. as we kept moving forward, people felt darker equals legitimate. Yeah, that, that's a that's a, a prominent problem. <laughs> um, the films, the Bond films were not keeping up with the cultural zeitgeist as well as the creators would have liked, I'm sure. Like something like, I mean, you can see it kind of it. Die Another Day is such a weird fucking movie. But you can kind of see like the opening is so serious. Like the torture scene is oh. dire. Oh, it's just a lot. It's a lot. And then uh, the end of the movie is goofy. And that's what I mean as far as like, it, like you, I think they're trying, but like they really needed to reimagine what was going on in the Bond films to have to get them to fit in with the modern era. Um, in Casino Royale and Franchise Remix, James Bond is Superhero by Robert P. Arnett, Arnett claims that this is a remix rather than a reboot. So rather than starting fresh, it's taking the elements of a familiar thing, which in this case would be the Bond formula, and rearranging those elements to create something new. It, it totally makes sense that they do that because they're creating an entire 
entire new group of people that they can capture while still Mm -hmm. capturing the others that can say hey kid i love james bond you too let's sit and watch it yeah i think that they that they're doing something that will kind of capture multiple audiences um even though like i was talking with our friend bailey about it and and he was saying you know i don't who is the audience for casino royale it doesn't really feel like any one group um and i think that's i think that's kind of intentional but also kind of a marker of almost insecurity as far as like what the movies are doing. I had, I, I put a note in this, in this later, but I had Casino Royale was so like, I love the, the spoof one. And I yeah. know it wasn't, I like I going in, I'm like, I know this isn't the same, but there was still some type of like expectation of like almost kind of a letdown. Uh-huh. But, you know, I still had a good time. Casino Royale is a solid movie. And I, I was reading the all and you're like, and then you start talking about how dark it is. Like, well, I just said it's a really good time. So <laughs> I'm sorry, but the torture scene's still kind of funny. It is. No, it's super funny. <laughs> it's, it's really funny. Um, Anyways. I think the idea of these the Craig films as a remix is a really good explanation of what's going on. Because it's not a hard reboot, right? We still have Judy Dench as M. Because she's perfect. Because she's perfect. And there's some there's definitely something different about the tone and framing of the Craig Bond films. Like they are more serious overall. I think we can all universally agree that the Craig Bond films are more serious mm-hmm. than the predecessors. Even even the Timothy Dalton films, which still had like a wild sled chase. Um, but instead of <laughs> no feeling <laughs> Instead of feeling like I was, I have to say, I'm sorry to interrupt myself, but I was so, I thought we were getting a fucking skiing scene in No Time to Die. I was, I was so ready, but we did not. I, I think that's the biggest downfall of these movies. Yeah. Not a single skiing scene to be found. Maybe Daniel Craig was like, I hate skiing. Maybe. (laughs) Maybe they wanted him to snowboard. (laughs) He's like, no. Update it. He's like, fuck you guys. Um, the, the the Craig Bond films are more serious overall, but instead of feeling like action blockbusters, which is how I would describe the the Brosnan films, like they feel like action blockbusters to me, um, they actually seem to take this more artistic approach in the cinematography and in the set design. They seem to want to be taken seriously, whereas I don't feel that that's true of the earlier Bond films, especially like the like Die Another Day immediately pre- <laughs> preceding the Craig Bond films, which is so goofy yeah i think they just wanted to make money yeah and i that, i think that's an interesting approach to to tackle the bond film as something serious like something that wants to be taken seriously it's not just a good time in in the face of you know fleming saying like oh basically these these books are just for fun they have no political meaning blah 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 which we know is bullshit but like these are move this the craig era feels like no these are political movies and you're going to take them seriously. I would have liked to be in the room to have that conversation of uh, like pitching the tonal shift. Yeah. So at this point, remixing or rebooting the franchise kind of seems like a good idea. And it also seems like a good idea to make use of those hot new Casino Royale rights, right? Um, it's the first movie since Dr. No to use the line based on the novel by Ian Fleming. Um, that's so Dr. No was the very first movie. So not since Dr. No, have we seen based on the novel by Ian Fleming? Um, Oh, I didn't notice that. Yeah. It's the first one. Uh, it's still not as close, um, to the, to the events of the novel as on her majesty's secret services. Um, but it is the first to use that since, um, in license to thrill a cultural history of the James Bond films by James Chapman, Chapman writes, the greater psychological depth implied for Bond and Casino Royale, rather than being seen as a response to other films, should instead be understood as a natural consequence of the decision to adapt the Fleming novel. 
uh, Eco, it's Umberto, or Umberto Echo, I think it's Echo, uh, suggests that Fleming's Casino Royale is informed by a degree of psychological realism. Quote, the treacherous life of moral meditation and of psychological anger, anger unquote. I really just said anger. <laughs> that was largely absent from the later stories. Um, so in choosing to really adapt Casino Royale, as in actually adapt it, unlike the spoof version, which does contain like a, um, an amount of Casino Royale, the it's book. It's called Casino Royale. It's called Casino Royale. The part with um, with the casino and Le Chief, like is an adaptation. Yeah. Um, the, so in choosing to adapt Casino Royale, they kind of had to take a more serious approach because it's a serious book. Like this is a book that's not fucking around. I read it. Uh, way back when we did the first episode, um, and it's a it's a serious time. I wonder if there was just like this. Here's my tin hat, tin hat, tin foil hat. Put on. Someone was like, "I love Bond. I'm gonna watch Casino Royale. That was fucking hilarious. I wonder what the book is like. Reads the book, be like, "Wow, that's really fucking different." But I still like it. Let's do it. <laughs> we can only hope. Um, Casino Royale doesn't or. Yeah, Casino Royale doesn't, like, explain in its entirety why Bond is the way he is. Although, like, the films do actually try to make that move, especially in Skyfall. Mm-hmm. Um, I like that. I know some people don't like, like, giving people a background. And there are times when it's dumb. But mm-hmm. I like when I get backgrounds on people. I think that... Well, I'll get more in, into it later. But I think that was part of what made the Craig era interesting. Yeah. Um, they really let him be just a fuck up. Yeah. Um... So Casino Royale doesn't explain in its entirety why Bond is the way he is, but there is a clear line drawn, in my opinion, from his difficult job to his drinking and his womanizing habits. Like, it's like, clearly those are vices. Which is so interesting because, I don't know, I feel this way, but maybe I'm wrong. I feel like Craig sleeps with less women. He does, for sure. So the fact that they made that advice that really needs to be fixed is so interesting. Yeah, I I mean, they, they touch on it in previous films, like, yeah, but it kind of feels like a haha, right? Yeah, it's like ha, it's like haha. Yeah, advice. haha. I have a drinking problem. Ha ha ha. But like yeah. in these movies, it's like it's a little more like no, actually, this is a really unhealthy coping me- mechanism that I'm choosing not to address. Here's a here's, someone's just like here's a, a, a email or phone number to my therapist. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, after the scene where Lashif, in this is in the book. After the scene, the scene where Lashif tortures him by beating his genitals, Bond sincerely doubts his masculinity and his effectiveness like as an agent like because in this world your your penis and your effectiveness and your as a man and your masculinity are all the same thing absolutely Um, unequivocally (laughs) true yeah and in like that's how it works in this world but but after after lashif tortures him by beating his genitals he is seriously he has an identity crisis am i even a man even anymore am i even a secret agent like, what do I do with this information? That happens in the book? Yes. Does that happen in the movie? Not really. Okay. Um, I didn't remember it, but I, I have bad memory. It's kind of light. It's kind of lightly there, but it's not as intense. And I'll talk more about that later as well. The only thing in the book that brings him back to himself is having sex with Vesper, which entangles the ideas of sex, masculinity, and even his effectiveness as a spy. Like, I went halfway through that fucking movie thinking her name was Vespa. <laughs> good old Vespa. <laughs> I was like, well, you know, I mean, everybody gets a ride. <laughs> um, <laughs> they missed, they missed an opportunity. <laughs> uh, but it is very dark. The book is. And I, I think the filmmakers knew that if they really wanted to invigorate the franchise and do the novel justice, they would need to do something different. Maybe that's how they got the rights. 
Maybe. It, it was a legal battle. Like it was a legal, it was oh, a legit okay. legal battle. They finally won. Um, so this is a quote from Casino Royale and Franchise Remix, James Bond, a superhero by Robert P. Arnett, who writes, In Quantum of Solace, most of the traits associated with Connery's Bond remain absent. Craig never says, I'm Bond, James Bond, and never mentions vodka martinis. Other levels of referencing do appear. The woman slathered in oil, like the woman painted gold in Goldfinger. The Aston Martin replica destroyed in the opening. What constitutes the autonomy of this bond can be found in five significant factors. The first is commercial. According to Waxman, quote, in the late 1990s, market research showed Bond movies to have the oldest demographic of any action-adventure series, unquote. Casino Royale's iteration of Bond needed to appeal to a younger demographic, not only for a larger section of the movie audience, but also because of ancillary markets. Waxman points out that Casino Royale's producers were cognizant that, quote, the booming success of Bond video games has driven a younger audience to the movies, Mr. Wilson said, which Sony and the producers do not want to disappoint. Oh my gosh, that makes so much sense. Yeah. So the filmmakers were well aware of the fact that the target demographic for James Bond films was aging. If they wanted the the franchise to remain successful, something was going to have to change. Um, Now, I don't know whether we can say that the movies are darker because that's what they thought the more youthful audience would want. But following Batman Begins and V for Vendetta in 2005, the new Bond films and even the later Lord of the Rings films were sort of the start of a darker form of the very popular pop culture that we saw in a lot of the 2010s. Like, I don't know why specifically that happened, and I'm sure it's going to come up in an episode sometime because it sounds like the kind of thing that we would talk about. Um, but I, th- and, and we did touch on it a little bit earlier with regard to like what was happening in the 80s and then like these adaptations. I mean, V for Vendetta is an adaptation of a, ba- of a 80s comic. Um, Batman Begins and The Dark Knight are adaptations of a very specific take on Batman from the 80s. Constantine is an adaptation of an 80s series, also quite serious. Um, and then you have. What am I missing? I know I'm missing a major one. Watchmen. Watchmen. Um, all of these things are coming from this very serious era of comics. Blade? No, Blade was way before that. Blade was late 90s, I yeah, believe. Yeah. Um, but so, I, you know, I don't know why specifically this happened, but I think this reinvention of the Bond films was part of that move toward grittier pop culture, um, which, you know, has its up and ups and downs. There's lots of gritty pop culture I like. There's lots of gritty pop culture I don't like. But... Um, I think that this was part of that transition into pop culture being mm. quite serious. Um, I, I mean, obvious, the obvious thing we can point to here is 9-11, right? Yeah, that was my first thought um, in the recession. Yeah, and that comes up quite a bit when talking about Casino Royale in particular, because while Die Another Day did take place after 9-11, it was like being filmed. It would have been being filmed in 2001, and so 2002, like, there's only a very passing reference to it. Um, but I think it's hard to say that this is the complete picture because let me tell you, the early two thousands were a fucking time. Yeah. I mean, every era is a fucking time, right? Like there's never an area. It's like, everything was peaceful and nothing yeah, bad but- happened. Uh, but the early two thousands also had a global recession or that was the late two thousands. that started around 2000, 2007, 2008. Yeah. Well, there was a, there was a mild one mm-hmm. uh, in 2002 and it lasted until like 2004. Yeah. So there really wasn't that much of a gap in between. Either. Yeah. So there's a global recession. There was a crisis in Darfur, a tsunami in Indonesia. There was Hurricane Katrina. Like, and that's all like that's that's excluding 9-11. There was a lot going outside of the going on outside of the U.S. as well. Um, I mean, the tsunami in Indonesia was not Darfur and Indonesia are not in America. But you know what I mean? I remember the tsunami was bad. Yeah, it was a big deal. And then there was another tsunami in the like what? The one that hit Japan. Oh yeah. Um, I don't don't even ask me when that. I want to say early 2010s, um, but I could be wrong. Uh, so 
you know, it's important to remember that while these movies are funded in part by Hollywood, they're kind of a U.S.-U.K. joint venture. Uh-huh. Um, they're also British movies. I wonder, I was thinking about this a lot because I always, I this is one of the things that I find the most interesting about this time of pop culture, about how these, like 9-11 specifically, affects pop culture. Because I, I find it's really interesting. And I was thinking about it more because they are British movies. Mm-hmm. And so it's hard to connect, well, it's not hard to connect that, but it's hard to make that as a reason. Um, and I'm wondering how much the internet has to do with this. Mm-hmm. And that we have access to things that are happening in other countries that we might not see on the news and that might not be reported in the same way. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering how much that had an effect. All of these things come together and then thrown on the internet. And then it kind of just feels like it's everywhere. Yeah. I don't know. And I think the internet is also like the internet. It doesn't, the internet itself does not play a major role in the Craig Bond films, but global surveillance does. Mm -hmm. And part of that is a result of, 9-11 with the NSA and the Patriot Act, right? So clearly we have some thinking in this time period about global surveillance and its uses and its problems. Um, I can't believe we got to a point where Patriot Act is just kind of something. Oh yeah. We all just, we all just accept that now. And we're like, well, we give up. Yeah. We make jokes about it now. Um, And the kids don't understand. Yeah. Like it is just a fact of life now when in fact it is quite horrific. Imagine watching Patriot Act and not understanding what a life that would be. Um, So like, you know, of course what affects one world power will usually affect another, but we should aim to be at least a little less American centric when we think about the world and, and the environment in which these movies were created. Now, of course, Mary and I are American we have not lived anywhere else. So we are coming from an American perspective. And so I can't, I can't speak for what was going on everywhere else in the world. Um, but nine 11, we can't be the sole explanation. Um, that said, terrorism became a much more prominent theme in these movies than in previous ones where the villains are usually just a single bad dude trying to make a bunch of money or whatever. Right. I do know that terrorism in other countries definitely was a huge thing. Oh, absolutely. In England, in England too. And I think France specific, especially in England, actually, now that I think about it, there was a lot. Yes. Um, uh, and then that's, is, is that when France started having like extremely bad policies against Muslims? Um, or did that happen before that? I think that's always kind of been a hallmark okay. of French policy. But yeah, no, there were a lot of bombings in England. Yes. Yeah. Car bombings, right? Uh, I'm not sure about car bombings. I know that there were attacks in the, um, the tube. Huh. Um, and that kind of thing. So like terrorism was not only taking place on American soil. And in fact, I think other countries, especially like England may have a higher rate of, um, of terrorism than we do in the U S although of course the U S has a lot of mass shootings that we don't think of as terrorism because we're a broken fucking country. It's true. Um, so this is a quote, another quote here from license to thrill by James Chapman who writes casino Royale therefore refers to the economy of terrorism shortly before its release. Indeed, a U.S. state department report had suggested that the main terrorist threat to the United States was not another 9-11 style attack, but came from the existence of wealthy sponsors of terrorism with connections to the world of high finance. So it sounds like this event, this like the release of this information, was probably unknown to the creators of the film, right? If it, if it came out at around the same time, they would have filmed and written the, for- the film before then. But it does reflect a number of concerns, including both terrorism and wealth inequality. And I think wealth inequality is more of a well-known issue today than it was in the mid-2000s. Um, it's not that people weren't aware of it before the Great Recession or Occupy Wall Street. 
Mm. Um, the original anonymous. But uh, this this sets the stage. What a world. <laughs> this sets the stage for what we see through the rest of the Craig films. Most of the villains occupy some sort of space of power and money, and they tend to cover up their evil actions with something else. Which sounds like the older Bond films, right? Like, oh yeah, they all have money and they're all doing something nefarious. But in this case, they usually have a connection to like world governments or something. Like the governments are directly funding whatever horrible shit the villains are doing. Mm -hmm. Um, So this is a quote from Not Now, That Strength, Embodiment and Globalization in Post-9-11 James Bond, which is by Vincent M. Gain, who writes, "Uh, Die Another Day's use of North Korea also demonstrates engagement in contemporary geopolitics. Casino Royale's explicit reference to 9-11 is indicative of the rebooted franchise's engagement with contemporary events, but there is a crucial difference in the stakes of the film's drama, a difference that runs throughout Craig-era Bond. Die Another Day, Goldeneye, Moonraker, and Diamonds Are Forever all feature threats to the free world in the form of satellites that the villains use to target major cities. In Casino Royale, Lind warns Bond that if he loses the British, if he loses, the British government will have directly funded terrorism. Rather than destroying superweapons, Bond must protect British interests and his country's reputation, something that is no longer guaranteed. So unlike in previous Bond films, there is no assumption that Britain has done the right thing, which I think is the biggest difference between the Craig Bond films and the, and their predecessors. Yeah, they kind of toyed a lot around with it. And which one? Which one? The Timothy Dalton films played yeah. with it a bit. Um, maybe a little little hints of it in the Brosnan era. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, but for the most part, he was keeping the British end up right. Like it was, it was just Brit- Sicario. Got, get released. Uh, Britain just never really did anything wrong. Uh, even though Bond may have been at odds with his bosses on various occasions, it was usually because he disagreed with their methods, mm-hmm. not because he disagreed with their actions. And it felt like at the end it was like, this is for the country, so just listen. Yeah. Like, God damn it. Um, here, there's a clear acknowledgement that Britain at least may have done something wrong. And the conflict shifts from, you know, Britain saves the world to Britain's reputation is preserved either because they didn't do the shady shit they could be accused of doing or because they did, but they had a good reason. So there's this shift from Britain never does anything wrong to, well, maybe they did. Maybe this is, might be a lot. Maybe. <laughs> um, so did, wh- I don't know if you know, but did, did Britain like, like cause America gave a lot of um, funds and weaponry to like the Middle East Mm-hmm. Which which played into um, terrorism? Yes. Did Britain do that yes, as well? Yes, they supported okay. they supported the same uh, very similar. Yeah, and we talked about this in the in the Timothy Dalton mm-hmm. episode. In the same way that um, Americans fund like provided weapons to the uh, rebels in Afghanistan, um, Britain did as well. But the reason that they did it was not because they supported the rebellion. It was because they were fighting the Soviets. So mm-hmm. it was it was very much the enemy of my enemy is my yeah. friend and not like we actually give a shit about what you're doing. Yeah. Um, so while I wouldn't say that these movies are explicitly critical of imperialism or empire or Britain itself, um, I would say that there is some discomfort both with Britain's status as a world power and its history of exploitation. They seem to at least be aware of those things, whereas those were not concerns of the previous films. Um, there's a bit of grappling with it, though it is pretty toothless. Uh, and of course, the films do re- still reinforce reinforce British power and like the right to British power. Um, they always end up doing the right thing, but there seems to be a slight exploration of the possibility that they could do the wrong thing or that they did the wrong thing in the past and are now paying paying for it. Um, which is, you know, it's not much, but it's something. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the Bond formula. Ready. Um, first question: Do we feel that these bo- these films adhere to that Umberto Eco formula? 
I mean, they can't because I enjoyed most of them through the entire thing. (laughs) I think so. The formula refers to like the series of moves, right? Like Bond moves against the villain. The woman moves against Bond, et cetera, et cetera. Don't ever trust the first woman. Yeah, exactly. Uh, So I think the the earlier films flirted a bit with continuity, right? Like there would be like, oh, we're going to do like Moonraker is going to do it a little differently. We're going to do a little differently here. But for the most part, they're mostly self-contained. Um. That, you know, you might have a character appear in one movie. Like, you know, you could have recurring characters like Q or Felix or M. Um, but for the most part, you know, Bond would not change. There would be no shift in the story. Events didn't really carry over movie to movie. And the characters didn't really grow. But, like, the circumstances would change. So that would allow you to reuse that formula and still have it feel fresh and exciting. One of the biggest, I think, distinguishing features of the Craig era is that there is continuity from movie to movie. Uh, and the characters actually do grow and change over time. The relationships between them grow and change over time. I mean, I when we watched the new one, I, and he was so upset about Vesper, I literally went to him like, we're still talking about Vesper? Yeah, and that's because, like, unlike the previous movies, he actually is still carrying the weight of that grief. Yeah, I thought about this a lot because um, it makes sense to me. Because if you think about the, the time period before this, and especially if you think about television... Uh, every like a lot of the television that people were watching you could watch one episode and be okay Mm -hmm. friends seinfeld malcolm in the middle um a bunch of others you can go and watch one and there was this clear shift to watching tv that had a full storyline from beginning Mm -hmm. to end so it makes sense to me that the that that made this switch Mm -hmm. also then it keeps people invested yeah Um, the bond of no time to die is not the same as the bond of Casino Royale, not because unlike previous films, he's played by a different actor, but because the story allowed there to be repercussions and choices that lasted beyond the end of Casino Royale. Mm -hmm. Um, that to me is a huge variation on the formula enough to say that, no, I actually don't think that the Craig Bond films largely do adhere to that formula, even though there are still many similarities between the Craig films and the older ones, they feel very different. Um, not in a way that says they don't feel like Bond films, because they certainly do feel like Bond films, but just in a way that they, they really do feel like a remixing of that formula. And, and it, it was mixed and it, perfectly. Yeah, they feel like intentional remixes. They knew their audience. Yeah. I think that they did a lot of good market research. Yes. <laughs> Um, so another quote here from License to Thrill by Chapman, who writes, there is a certain tension, moreover, in the fact that while Casino Royale strips the Bond mythology down to its bare essentials, it still expects the audience to be familiar with aspects of that mythology. It is still largely the mythology of the films rather than the books, though Craig does order a vodka martini according to Fleming's recipe. Um, so I think in line with the argument that the Craig films are a remix as opposed to a reboot, the familiarity and use of the Bond mythology or formula is obviously still important to the, to the understanding of the Bond film, the Craig films. Um, did you want to add something? Yeah, I think that this, is, this might be a weird, weird one to look at, but I felt this way through the whole, all of Craig and like, I feel like the cars are a really good visual of this. Yes. Because the original car was an Aston Martin, right? I don't know that it was in Dr. No, but I think it, maybe goldfinger but he, but it comes through right and then um and craig we he has brand new cars i remember watching it with my husband and he had a, a bmw and my husband was like people got really mad that mm-hmm. it's a bmw but as we go through the movies the original car makes appearances and it's not like a 
uh, like, oh, if you know, you know, it's like, uh, let's get that car. That's that's the car. Yeah. It makes a, a, like it is part of that scene. And so I think that's a really good it's not remaking it. It's it's remixing it. So you still have everything there. It's just it's made new. And it's a new I think it's a new model. Yeah. Of the Aston Martin as is. well. So he's not using the same car from the 50s. He's using a new version of the classic car that, you know spiritually bond is connected to yeah i I just the car is such a huge part of that and i mean you could say the same well you could make an you could make an argument for um the gadgetry too because while the movies are still are really serious now the gadgets still are just silly enough especially inspector (laughs) i'll talk more about that later um, the best part of the movie. <laughs> Just Q in general. Oh, God, I love Q. I love Q. I love he's, him. He usually he ages. He does. He sure does age. He's so cute when he first comes on. I mean, he's still cute. But I was like, you could, you could, that? You could see the 15 years yes, you uh, see the on Q more so Whereas than the other actors. Daniel Craig, I feel, looks the same. He does. <laughs> um, so even the most basic familiarity with the Bond films makes the film casino royale more interesting so that you get lines like when somebody asks he wants his martini shaken or stirred he says does it look like i give a damn or do i look like i give a damn and that that becomes funnier because you are aware of his predilection for shaken not stirred martinis um but it's also that like i'm the working man kind of thing like yeah i i am bond but i'm still like this is like i don't really care that much and well i think the interesting thing that it does too is it establishes this is our first look at this new bond right and this is a bond at the beginning of his career the bond that doesn't order a shaken not stirred martini the bond that does not introduce himself as bond james bond is not yet the bond we know so there's there's some flexibility there as far as who this bond is going to become it's not until the end of the movie and again we'll touch on that later um, it's not until the end of the movie that he does say the iconic Bond James Bond line. I didn't notice that. And when I read that line, I was like, oh, wow, that's so interesting. They yeah. Really, like, I think these movies were really carefully crafted. I agree. Um, I think the film is suggesting then that he isn't truly Bond until he has had this horrible experience mm-hmm. with losing Vesper. He is not the broken, snobby asshole yet. It is when he loses Vesper that he becomes Bond. Like, who is Bond without having lost Vesper? We don't know. And I think that that's something that the movie is saying. There is no bond without the tragedy of losing Vesper. Hmm. Um, If that reading is accurate, then we are already in a different place than we were in any of the other Bond films because Casino Royale did not have an adaptation. So without Vesper, you don't, if, if without Vesper, you don't have bond, then did we have bond in the earlier films, according to the novels, right? Obviously we had, we had the movie bond, but that movie bond is a different character Mm -hmm. from the book bond. And I think here we're seeing this closer adherence to the bond of the novels. Yeah. Um, so this is a quote here from I've been inspecting you, Mr. Bond, uh, Crisis, Catharsis and Calculation in Daniel Craig's 21st Century w- 007 by Jonathan Murray. A very good title. It is a very, there's is a very good title. some great titles. Uh, so Murray writes, in sharp contrast, being British seems more of a burden or a burner, as I wrote, a burden <laughs> the longer the Craig era progresses. By the time Spectre is reached, a sense of permanent and possibly irretriev- irretrievable national crisis is firmly entrenched. Bond and his brethren are linked by shared knowledge from bitter experience that the best way to protect the country is to protect oneself from the country's government. No previous Bond film comes close to matching the amount of time Skyfall and Spectre spend on British soil, central London for the most part. 
The 007 cycle spent decades accumulating air miles via the idea of Britain as the world's policeman, a steady-handed, cool-headed buffer between two volatile, because much younger, superpowers. The Craig movies instead drive mortal danger and defenselessness deep into the nation's physical and political heart. Um, I thought this was really interesting in light of something that I believe was said in the Brosnan era, which was that these are action-adventure films as, as opposed to the more straightforward action films popular in the 80s and 90s, like Die Hard or... I don't know. I was struggling to come up with names, so I could only come up with Die Hard and Speed. Um, but, you know. I wouldn't even be able to come up with Speed, so. <laughs> it's like one of the only action movies I really like. Um, the idea of adventure in action adventure came from Bond as a globe-trotting figure. So what, mm -hmm. what they were saying distinguished action adventure films, the Bond films, from action films like Die Hard was that Bond would go on adventures around the world. It, he wouldn't just stay in one place. So when you strip that travel away and you set the majority of the story in London, the idea of them as action adventure starts to crumble a little bit. Mm -hmm. But does that make them action movies is the interesting question for me here. And I don't think that they do. I don't, I don't know that action film is the best way to describe the Craig era Bond films. I don't know enough about action film and like what def like what defines it to really make this. Because I look at it and I see a lot of action. So I'm like action film. Lots of blowing shit up. Right. Sounds action film. But I'm not a huge fan of action films. So my first thought of it goes to blow shit blows up in action films. Yeah, that's so like I am. I don't like action films, like just kind of period. I just really don't like most of them. So I'm not the person to to stamp the film with action or not action. But I think in tone, they feel much more like thrillers and specifically espionage thrillers to me as opposed mm -hmm. to action. I feel like this is especially true in uh, Skyfall. Yes, absolutely. Um, there is certainly action in these movies. Like, of course, shit's being blown up. There's lots of property damage. Especially Spectre. Especially Spectre. Um, but the Craig Bond films have a decidedly psychological bent that the previous incarnations do not. Um, they are interested in why Bond is the way that he is to a certain extent, which is helped precisely because they have a continuity. Because we, we see Bond from, from movie to movie, we can see that there is a sense of him that changes or that grows or that has meaning beyond what's literally happening on the screen. So they have, you know, they have this psychological interest as alongside things blowing up the gratuitous property damage, et cetera, et cetera, all the stuff we expect from a Bond film. Um, and again, I think there is that hint of criticism of the government. It's not much, but a degree of skepticism is still more than we have seen previously. And it is at odds with the Bond films as the sort of like pro-British state propaganda pieces that we saw before. Like, consider George Lazenby using a Union Jack parachute versus Daniel Craig rejecting the English bulldog statue with a Union Jack dog or a Union Jack on it. Very different perceptions okay. of England. Even if I wouldn't go to so far as to say that Craig's Bond, like, hates England or anything. Like, I'm not going to say that. But there is, like, clearly a difference between George Lazenby jumping out of a or jumping off a cliff with the Union Jack parachute and Bond saying, don't put that ugly thing on my desk. Yeah. Like, that's that's a marked difference. Um, another quote here from I've Been Inspecting You, Mr. Bond by Jonathan Murray, who writes, It's also worth noting that the Craig movies' national pessimism dampen deepens with each passing entry in the quartet. What Vesper poses as a near unimaginable aberration in Casino Royale, quote, our government will have directly funded terrorism, unquote, comes to look like business as usual across its successors. So again, I think this idea is helped along by these films actually having continuity. Mm -hmm. uh, I think throughout the Craig films, we, all, we see this kind of slow slide into a completely validated distrust in authority. 
that situates Bonds as, as an individualist hero rather than as a representative of the British state. Well, it makes sense to me because when we were talking about terrorism, what we found out is that our country cannot keep us safe. Mm-hmm. So, And often our country is responsible for yeah. the problems that get American or British citizens killed. It, so, is, it is the government policies that do it. I think that having anything else with James Bond would have been bad. Right. Um, he has, you know, Bond has to convince his superiors to do the right thing. And we're getting into no time to die spoilers now. So if you, if you haven't seen it yet and you're worried about that, now is the time to turn the episode off. And if you want to see it, I really suggest it was a really good movie. It was a lot of fun. I, it was probably the most fun I've had at a Bond movie in a very long time. It was definitely my favorite canon one. Um, so if you haven't seen it yet, now is the time to stop. You've given, you've been warned. You've been warned. Um, so Bond has to convince his superiors to do the right thing. And Mallory's horrible bullshit ends in Bond's death, right? M's replacement, Mallory. Um, Bond sacrifices himself not to preserve the British state, even though that is a consequence, right? He, he managed in, in dying, he helps effectively cover up M's bullshit or Mallory's bullshit. Um, but he sacrifices himself to save the world as a whole and to stop anybody, the British included, from having access to this horrific weapon. Um, and these things are meant to be horrific, right? It's not that M or Mallory made one bad call, like, whoopsie, Mallory accidentally engineered a deadly virus. Whoops. Um, it's that they deliberately made choices to advance the British cause that harmed their own, which is a betrayal of what the government is for. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, weapons are going to harm people. No matter what, that is the point of a weapon, right? Does it, it, does it make a moral difference if the weapon harms British people as opposed to people on the other side of the world? No. It's bad regardless. But, you know. Well, they made it a real point to be like, we're going to commit genocide with this. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> like straight up, we're ready for genocide. Yeah. It's not that the films are being critical of war or of weapons or anything like that. It's being critical of the British government's lack of interest in its own citizens. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the fundamental difference there. So this is a quote from Not Now, That Strength, Embodiment and Globalization in Post-11, Post-9-11, James Bond, which is by Vincent M. Gain, who writes, Bond's antagonist is no longer a remote megalomaniac bent on world domination, but Western capitalism, which is ironic considering Bond's history as a figure of consumption. Despite the scarred faces and exotic accents of Le Chief, Silver, Blofeld, and Green, the enemy has become more banal and mundane. The human manifestations of evil may be other, contrasted with the middle-class, middle-aged, heterosexual white male of the British establishment that Bond epitomizes, but what these men serve is far more insidious and pervasive. As Beam and the Foreign Secretary point out, if governments did not deal with villains, they would have no trading partners. So, I would not go so far as to say that Craig Bond films are critical of capitalism. That is a that is a bridge too far for me. That's fair. Um, that That's a reach I am not prepared to make. I think it's, from like, when I think about this, here's more tin... tin. Tin fin fofol is mm-hmm. what I was Yes. Tin hat. Um, I feel like it's critical in capitalism as a lot of people are and that they don't think that they are. And then when they start like getting questioned, mm-hmm. they're like, oh, maybe, maybe capitalism isn't the best. But but don't really dig much further than that. Yeah, I think I think I can agree that they are critical of a specific form of unethical capitalism, mm-hmm. right? I don't know that there is an ethical form of capitalism. That sounds like an oxymoron to me. But we're going to play nice with the films here for a moment and pretend that such a thing is possible. You just scratch the top. And you're like, yep, capitalism there. Yeah, so I think that they are, they are critical of a specific form of unethical capitalism that may align with neoliberalism, which is a form of government that scales back on government spending in favor of privatizing public public resources, along with a whole host of other things. You've no doubt heard the word neoliberalism thrown around before. 
uh, probably on this very podcast. But um, I think that they can, they are, again, critical of a specific form of unethical capitalism that you could say aligns with neoliberalism, but I don't, I don't think that they are that cognizant of that. I don't think that they are trying to critique neoliberalism. I think they are trying to talk about the role of government in yeah. in unethical spending and, and that, that kind just of thing. Happens to be a capitalist government. Exactly. Exactly. I don't. I don't think that they are. Ca- they are critical of capitalism. Um, so I don't. Again, don't think it's taking an explicitly anti neoliberal or anti or anti capitalist perspective. But because I think that would be a, a, a big stretch for um, a Bond movie. For, not just for a Bond movie, but for like a Hollywood production, right? Like. We, you know, there's, we talked about this in our animation and capitalism episode. You have movies like the Lego movie and like Wally mm-hmm. that like, sure, are, you know, flirting with the idea of capitalism as a destructive force. But, you know, are they really getting there? I don't and know. It's still made by Disney. Yeah. It, it's the, it's. Or whatever Lego is. Uh, Warner? I don't know. Blah, blah, blah. Probably. Uh, there, you know, like the people who make it, who are making these movies may have that idea themselves but like being made within the structure means they're always going to be a little bit toothless um but there is this awareness i think of the flaws in in systems like capitalism and neoliberalism um and specifically in prioritizing money and business over the needs and well-being of the people that governments are meant to serve so we see the potential of these systems in the plots that bond thwarts throughout the craig era like he's fighting back against you know, uh, a wealthy man using a charity to shade to cover up his shady deals. We're seeing Lashif as um, sort of a a hub for terrorist activity, using you know his government connections to make money. Um, there's there's always this again this flirting with the idea of like government corruption and money. Um, and we haven't touched on this too much, but there is this distinct tendency throughout all of the Bond films. Um, and the Craig films in particular, to equate physical disfigurement, disability, or visual markers of difference, mm-hmm. along with effeminacy or homosexual- homosexuality with difference and evilness. There is always othering going on with these villains. So again, I don't want to suggest that these movies are some kind of progressive haven. Um, at best, the Craig films are better than their predecessors, but to be better than something does not mean that you have moved beyond it. It just means you're doing a better version of it. Well, and I, I also would think that because the world has changed to become more aware, it is just natural to be the way that it is. So if you were to take it and put it in another time, I don't like we wouldn't have gotten this. It's if that makes well, sense. The thing, the thing that gets me is they're still using physical disfigurement as a sign of evilness. Yeah. And it's like, bro, it's 2021. Come a on. A lot of people don't get that. I, but like these films seem to be aware of a number of other things we'll talk about. No Time to Die in particular mm-hmm. with No Me and Q and that kind of thing. Um, they're aware of certain things, but they they just cannot let go physical disfigurement as a symbol of evil. Do they just can't sure fucking do know. it. <laughs> like, it's wild. There was no reason that Rami Malek's character needed to be physically disfigured. Well, they made him look unattractive. Which is impressive which for I'm Rami Malek. I'm more upset about that. Yeah, come on. Let us look at Rami Malek. <laughs> um, I always get him mixed up with somebody else that I can't remember. I always get him mixed up with his character in Until Dawn. Mm. <laughs> he, mm. That's the first thing I saw him in, so he will always be his character from Until Dawn to me. I will say he's such a great actor because I was like, I don't like this man. um so referring to the formula right there are definitely moments throughout the craig era that are hearkening back to the films that came before and i think the best way to see this 
and, and, and its effectiveness and ineffectiveness is to compare Spectre to No Time to Die. Um, Spectre was not particularly well received, although Fair. I think it's at least better than Quantum of Solace. Well, and it makes sense that it came after Quantum of Souls, right? Yeah. And it's like, oh, we strayed too far. Let's, let's try it, to reel Quantum it back. of Solace was so fucking dull. It was, uh, I just, I remember watching it with my husband and being like, all right, here, oh, no, oh, here we go. No, Mm-mm. they didn't, oh, oh, no, no. It had so much potential to it's be a, so good. It's a real snoozer. It had so, the least scary yeah. villain ever. So Spectre, to me, felt a lot like they were trying to capture the gadgets and humor of some of the earlier films, mm-hmm. but they were doing it by recreating those moments. They, were, they weren't trying to reinvent them or remix them. They were trying to recreate them. So it feels like they tried to carbon copy what worked before. The, the jokes, the gadgets, having Blofeld back, etc. But with Craig there, and that just doesn't work. I did not like it. Like I was, I was watching it and I, and I fell back into what I felt with the other movies of I love the beginning. Mm-hmm. And then we get to the rest of the movie and I completely zone out and have to like rewind. Um or just don't care at, at the end, yeah. whatever. Um, and I and I was like, why Spectre? Why? And then I was reading that. I'm like, that's why they went back. They yeah. went back to the formula. They were it trying work for me. They were trying really hard to recapture the magic of that formula, and but the magic is gone. But in putting Craig there, you're not using the groundwork laid by the prior films. Um, and it's also a super weird decision because Skyfall did not do that. And Skyfall was really well received and very yeah. good. So like, what were you doing, Inspector? Um, now, No Time to Die also makes very many specific references to On Her Majesty's Secret Service so in particular. Surprising. Which is great, actually. I thought it was really well done. The theme is reused. Uh, like they use the, the musical um, instrumental version throughout. Um, and, and then they use it again at the end of the movie. Like they straight up just use the Louis Armstrong version. Um, people didn't like on her majesty's secret service. People didn't like Lazenby. Okay. In particular, but the movie like was not as well received in part because it wasn't Connery. So I wonder if we'll get a resurgence of that movie. It's a good movie because when I, when you're reading through this, my mind goes to Star Wars because of course mm-hmm. um, but how the, the the prequels have had this resurgence and a, I think a lot of it has to do with okay first there's a lot that goes into it but one of the reasons is um, using some of the those points and like storylines in newer stuff that is really good specifically like the um, animated series so bringing stuff from that movie forward mm-hmm. I'm curious if it will be like, oh, we really didn't appreciate this movie for what it was. Yeah. Now do Tomorrow Never Dies. <sighs> so good. Um, the theme is reused. Probably the, my second favorite. Yeah. The idea of being haunted by a woman's death is there. They straight up reuse the line, we have all the time in the world while driving down winding roads, which if you don't remember from On Her Majesty's Secret Service is what Bond says to Tracy right before she's murdered. Um <sighs> I got forgot about that. Yeah. Uh, but like the idea of remixing the formula itself, there is a remix of what works in On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Instead of ending on the woman's death and dropping Bond's grief immediately, the movie opens with his grief and his lack of trust being exploited and then dealing with the fallout of that before Bond's death that aims to right the wrongs of the government it's he represents. so emotional. I would say this is the least action film of mm-hmm. them all. 
It's so emotional. I cried, guys. I cried. I did not, but well, that was I because cry easily. that I let me tell you, I cry really easily. But um, the reason I did is because I remain convinced that he's not. I mean, he's not dead, right? That it said Bond will return in the next blah blah blah. But um, so it'll be his daughter. I doubt it. Wouldn't that be good though? Um, and she could be like the Casino Royale daughter. <laughs> I think so. The you know again, the movie opens with his grief, and then it ends in his death, which is you know, quite different from Honor Majesty's Secret Service. And I think that's a pretty stark departure, one that remixes the themes of the previous films, both Craig's films and others, and it, and specifically remixes Honor Majesty's Secret mm-hmm. Service, which honestly has been underappreciated since it released. So it was nice, actually, to see that attention in No Time to Die. It was a cra- carefully crafted movie. Yeah. For, from people who truly loved Bond. Yes. But there are also some elements throughout Craig's run that I feel actually push at the boundaries of what is acceptable in in a Bond film. Mm-hmm. So one of the most famous mm-hmm. examples, of course, is during the interrogation slash torture scene in Skyfall. Uh, Silva, played by Javier Bardem. Did oh, I wonderful. S- did I say that right? Because for some reason I kept saying Javier wrong. Javier Bardem. Javier. Sure okay. I kept sure saying correct. Javier. I kept saying Javier, Javier, and I don't know why I was doing that. Like Xavier? I don't know. I don't know, but I love Javier Bardem. Yeah. So Silva, played by Javier Bardem, unbuttons Bond's shirt to expose the scar caused by M ordering Money Penny to shoot him at the opening of the film. Um, Bond says something to the effect of, well, she never tied me to a chair, to which Silva responds, her loss. Silva continues to touch Bond's collarbone and his face, and Bond asks, are you sure this is about M, with a smile on his face? Silva then goes in, you know, into the usual, we're not so different, you and I, speech, except it's about rats. Um, and then he strokes Bond's thighs, like he caresses his thighs. And he's naked, right? At no. this point, he's not naked yet? No, you're thinking of, you're thinking of the sheaf. Oh, okay, never mind. Um, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah that's yeah. when he's naked. Uh, and then he strokes Bond, Bond's thighs and says, well, there's a first time for everything, to which Bond smirks and says, what makes you think this is my first time? They're just letting Daniel Craig be Daniel Craig yeah. at this point. So before we start applauding too much, it is worth noting that there is a little wiggle room here. Is Bond talking about being tied up? Is he talking about being tied up sexually? Is he talking about being tied up sexually by a man? Is he talking about being the last of two rats about to eat another rat? Like, obviously, this scene is homoerotically charged, right? Like, that is undeniable. Uh, But there is a myriad of possible readings. So it's not enough to say that Bond is now bisexual to me. Whatever the actor or writer or director meant by it, they do not ever confirm they do not on screen but they do almost have a kiss with Felix oh my god so I can't help but assume no I I totally (laughs) here's the thing I totally think that this bond is meant to be bisexual I totally think that that is the case I really truly thought they were gonna kiss I know I they never really confirm it so I cannot say that bond is bisexual because they don't say right but he totally is but he totally is like him and Felix definitely yes they they, bumped ugly listen I have been wanting them to kiss since Felix first showed up. I cannot explain how... The tension. I tried to explain it to my husband of like, you know, when you're watching something like, oh man, they're going to kiss, but you you know, they're not going to kiss. I legit, I turned to me and I'm like, holy shit, they're going to kiss. Like there was, he grabs his face and there was Mm -hmm. just this moment. I mean, there was a long moment too. It was a long moment and I really, truly thought it. They definitely kissed. I feel like they cut the kiss. Bond definitely kissed him in real, I mean, Daniel Craig definitely kissed him in real life. He kisses all of them. Yeah. He kissed Rami Malek. He picked Rami Malek up and kissed him. Yeah. Great. Wonderful. Yeah. 
Love that. I'm pretty sure they just cut the kiss. <laughs> so, so despite the fact that I cannot say that, like, oh, Bond is clearly bisexual, even though he clearly is. Like, you he understand is. the difference, <laughs> right? Like, um, he is, but you don't get points for that. Right. So, this, the reason that it's worth bringing up here is the fact that it welcomes in the potential for a queer reading of Bond. It doesn't say Bond is queer, but it opens the door for you to have that reading. Uh, almost how the Casino Royale spoof did, where it's like, if anybody can be Bond, then Bond can be queer, right? It did not confirm it, but it opened up the potential for that queer reading and therefore a destabilization of one of the axes upon which Bond's historical masculinity has been built. So homosexuality, or mis- more specifically, it's coding, because I don't think that there are any characters in the Bond franchise who are clearly canonically queer. There's a lot of coding again, but I don't know that anybody's There's like, hello, mention. I'm gay. There's a mention. Cute, cute with Q. Again, it's it's just but like, it's blink and you'll miss it. It's the closest someone gets to saying, I like same sex people. Yeah. So I wish he said it that way. I do too. <laughs> it's very awkward. So homosexual homosexual coding is usually used as an othering technique in these in these movies. But here in Skyfall, along with the brief mention of Q's male partner in No Time to Die, we have queer folks as emblematic of masculinity, of Britishness, and of heroism, which is a big difference, even if we still do have queer coded villains like Silva. So now we have the possibility for queer characters aligned with heroism rather than only as evil, which is what we had in the previous Mm -hmm. movies. So there's a lot of this kinds of boundary pushing in No Time to Die. You have Q's partner, but you also have Bond's replacement, the new 007, being a black woman. Mm -hmm. Now, I liked this as a real like thumb in the eye of people who didn't want to see Bond played by anybody but a white man. I loved it. And I also really like it as a counterpart to something that Daniel Craig said about how women should be able to have their own powerful roles rather than just having to play James Bond. Because be Jane Bond. Because N- Nomi is 007, not James Bond. She's mm-hmm. not taking the role of James Bond. She's taking the role of 007. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought that was like, because Daniel Craig got a, lo- a mixture of a lot of support and a lot of heat for saying that. But I don't know. I agree with him. I, I think it's, here's here's what I would love to see happen. So you know how, was it Ridley Scott who did the alien movies? Yes. You know how he did Prometheus and he's like, this is not alien movie. Right. This is not alien movie. This is not alien. And there wasn't a fucking alien movie. Yeah. I think that in the next one, they should call it 007. Mm-hmm. It's double, oh, the new James Bond. It's called 007. James Bond's name isn't anywhere. Yeah. And it opens up. It's fucking Nomi. Yeah. And she's 007. Yeah. I like not James Bond. <laughs> I think that's that's what I think that they did really effectively there. And like, I, I understand why people were irritated with Craig, what Daniel Craig had to say about like James Bond should should not be a woman. But he wasn't saying James Bond. He was saying James. He, he was saying what he said. James yeah. Bond should not be a woman because women deserve their own roles on the level of James Bond. They shouldn't have to just inherit the title. Um but, you know, with regard to this, the idea of this being like a thumb in an eye and the, a thumb in the eye of people who don't want to see Bond played by anybody who isn't a white man. I also think there was room for improvement. Mm-hmm. Um, making Bond's replacement a black woman is great from my perspective as a person who is, you know, frankly tired of straight white men playing Bond. Uh, but because she is his replacement and we don't like Mallory, it suggests that we shouldn't like Nomi either. Uh, so there's this little pissing contest between Nomi and Bond where she says, does that bother you in re- with regard to her inheriting his title? And they sort of have this power struggle about who gets to go through the door first. 
that bond ultimately wins, right? Mm -hmm. So for many members of the audience, I think they're going to end up disliking Nomi because of the threat she represents to Bond's power. Blasphemy. Yeah, even though they do eventually work together, she is always going to be compared to Bond's standard. But she has to give Bond the 007 back, right? She's like, yes. So So she doesn't even get to keep it. So while I like the choice and it works for me, I think it's a really safe choice that is going to work for everybody. Because either you're stoked to see a black woman as 007 or you're irritated to see a black woman as 007 and then you get to see her repeatedly shown up by Bond. Yeah. So like... Again, I'm not ready to praise it for that because while I like I like it from my reading, it's really easy to read it as like irritating as they well. She should have had sex and she should have been on top. <laughs> then she would have died. Um, no, and then she didn't die and then I'd be even more excited. <laughs> but I think most importantly here, you have Bond's character growth as evidence of a deliberate shift in the expected Bond formula. No Time to Die centers on Bond's relationship with Madeline Swan, the Bond girl from Spectre, and her daughter by Bond, Mathilde, I think is how it said. Um, they end up wanted in this revenge quest by Safin. I think is that Safin? That's the, the weakest, Safin? The weakest um, plot of the movie. Yeah, it is whatever. Um, which is the film's villain, played by Rami Malek. And Bond has to throw away his feelings of betrayal and not only rescue Madeline and Mathilde, but do so through a mixture of nurturing in a father and fatherly and husbandly way, but also through, also through his espionage skills. It's good. It's so good. I yeah. love it. So we'll get more into the masculinity angle later, but there's an entangling of the personal with the international here that's, that's quite interesting. Bond has rescued damsels in the past, of course. He's been rescued himself a couple times. But the stakes of this particular mission are high, not just because of the potential for destruction, which is very high, um, but also Madeline and his daughter being shot, being his shot at redemption mm-hmm. for repeatedly screwing things up and also for killing so many people. Like they represent this tantalizing promise of redemption for all of the bullshit that he, that he has done before. So there's this clear questioning, I think, of the stories that came before where Bonsu c- could care so intensely mm-hmm. about a character for the length of a movie and then never mention them again. So this movie, these movies at the end you find are not, actually action movies they are just tragedies honestly it it plays out like a tragedy seriously like it it, like if you watch craig bond it is it gets like the the action doesn't play such a huge role and like how much he fucks up how much like they really play on like his vices are truly like eating at him the psychological stuff Mm -hmm. and and in the end, what happens, it just feels like I've just watched a Shakespeare fucking tragedy. It is It is a man and the organization he represents orchestrating his own destruction. Exactly. Like, everything that happens in this movie is a result of Bond's actions or MI6's actions. It's just like, it's it's sad and it's really good, but it also is like, Bond finally you know, has repercussions. You know that tweet that's like, me sowing, haha, yeah, fuck yeah, me reaping, no, no, what the fuck? No. You don't know. Okay, no. well, it's real, and uh, I can get what you're saying. That's though. the that's the the Daniel Craig Bond films. Um, so, <laughs> you know, he cares so intensely in previous iterations. He would care so intensely about a woman or whatever for the length of a movie, and then he would never mention them again, except Tracy, who got like two shout outs, uh, even though they were so in love and married. Go Tracy! Um, I completely like it's all like blink and it's gone. Yeah. Uh, it ex- instead explores this new nurturing side of the character. So it asks, you know, it leads to questions like, what does it look like for Bond to care about someone that is in a sexual conquest? 
is he capable of caring about somebody that isn't a sexual conquest? He sure doesn't want to be. Yeah. And No Time to Die tells us, yes, he is capable of caring about somebody, which feels like a very different bond than any previous iteration. Even when he's told that the child is not his. Yeah. He's still like, well, I got to protect that child. Yeah. And because he knows, but even he, he knows. knows. Everybody know. knows. Everybody knows. You see those eyes. You're like, that's. You didn't even need to see the eyes. You're just like, oh, that's your kid. Yeah, it's like, the timing works out. She yeah. didn't get so sad and then just go fuck a bunch of men. No, it's clearly, uh, clearly his child. Well, and it, it works well to mirror her life. Yeah. Um, I would like to take a little break here and tell you. Whew, break time. Tell you about Jeff Stevens games. Not so breaky. Uh, producer of best-selling fifth edition adventures and supplements like the Kickstarter for Potbelly Kobold's Guide to Villains and Lairs. I love villains and lairs. Who does it? I know. There's a lot of those. There's a lot of those in James Bond. I guess if you're stuck. I missed a good lair. (laughs) This is, no, I mean the, in the end where all the plants are. That's That's what I'm saying. Oh, okay. I missed a good lair and we finally got one back. And it's a, and it's so, listen, I know we're talking about ads, but like (laughs) the more I thought about it, the so perfect it is because you know who they're capturing? Plant moms. <laughs> um, well, let me tell you about the Kickstarter for Potbelly Kobold's Guide to Villains and Lairs. Uh, Jeff has assembled an amazing team to develop Villains and Lairs for your 5th edition game. Writers include Ed Greenwood, Ginny D, uh, Justice Armin, Kat Evans, Anthony Joyce, Maxine Henry, John Four, Richard Green, and many others. If you go to Kickstarter, search for Potbelly Kobold's Guide to Villains and Lairs, you can support the campaign and get your copy now. You're going to support Villains and Lairs. Yeah. Good job. Problematic. Yeah, the government. Must be government. <laughs> Capitalism. Um, let me tell you about another cool adventure that you can get from Jeff Stevens Games. And we're going to, once again, I have not read the copy ahead of time. It's so. best if you don't. Encounters in the Savage Underdark. Oh, it's already good. What do you think? Is it going to be? Uh, my first thought for some reason was like dogs. Dogs. <laughs> <laughs> like savage dogs. Oh, Okay. Um, so Encounters in the Savage Underdark is a 150-page supplement containing mini-adventures, NPCs, locations, and magic items. In all, the writers have produced 24 unique encounters, NPCs, and locations for you to add to any subterranean campaign. They've even included scaling suggestions so the encounters can be used with different party levels. That's nice. Yeah. That didn't seem too stressful. No, not not like some of the other ones, like a Evil Circus. And- yeah. That's, I mean, for all we know, there's Evil Circuses in there, this but we don't know, so... So we don't know. So we don't know. Um, Adventures and Supplements isn't the only thing Jeff Stevens Games creates. There's even a talk show called Jeff Talks RPGs on Twitch, YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. On the show, Jeff speaks with RPG industry creators and players about topics in the RPG industry. He's even interviewed Ed Greenwood. So be sure to visit jeffstevensgames.com and subscribe to their mailing list for a free, 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 free PDF supplement. Um, I would also like to tell you, Mary, about dwarven rations so let me tell you about dwarven rations dwarven rations make artisanal cakes with a dedication to quality they are made in bermuda and shipped worldwide and have been for over 20 years so that's some cake expertise sure is um there are many flavors traditional lemon and madagascar vanilla chocolate light and fluffy yet brownie like swizzle michigan cherries apricots pineapple orange and lemon in the vein of a rum rum punch coconuts coconut shreds with the rum flavor is a pina colada and rum and ginger so apricots and ginger in the spirit of a dark and stormy uh each box also includes a random tabletop rpg die if you are into tabletop rpgs you just collect die it doesn't you just collect them you just it's just a thing you turn into a little goblin 
And it's not even like you have to like you, you collect. You just like have to like suddenly you play the game with one in it, and then suddenly you're collecting them. Yeah, it, you don't try. You don't even maybe have to play a game. You've just been to Comic Con and you saw and you saw pink glittery ones, and you're like, well, you go ooh shiny, and you're suddenly collecting. Yeah, it, that's just how it happens. Yeah, um, that's so like mini podcasting. You you can get a free dice when you when you get one of these cakes, and you get cake, and you get cake. Like Jeez. it's truly the best of both Jeez. worlds. So have they also have their own special, incredibly low-cost custom advertising cake kits for people who want to offer merch product for their fan base, but they do not want to have to buy and pay and ship inventory because that sucks. What do you think our cake flavor would be if we did it? Mm, I don't know. I think it would be like dark cherry. Like, because mm-hmm. we get so dark, but cherry is a happy, like, fun kid <laughs> flavor. <laughs> Um, sour dark cherry sour dark cherry I, yeah i think like a a black forest cake yeah yeah it's pretty yes. pretty solid um or some pink ice cream yes uh so it's for people that that want to offer this new merch product but they don't want to have be responsible for inventory which sucks so they handle all of that and then they send the cash as the cake sell which is great for starting up merch because it has little to no upfront cost um and of course all of these cakes are fantasy themed and made by a dedicated group of gamers, nerds, and artists. They are currently working out of the Bermuda Rum, Rum Cake Company in Bermuda, but are working to get the stateside bakery slash gaming center up and running in the coming months and years. Part of, you know, buying these cakes is helping them get that gaming center up and running. So to find out more, uh, you can go to their webpage at docglass.com slash dwarven rations. That's D-O-C-K-G-L-A-S-S. Check it out. Um, close that tab. Go back to the bond tab. Snobs. So, of course, we must come to the end. Well, this isn't the end of the episode. This is like two thirds. Two thirds, probably. We must talk about masculinity, right? We must. I don't know. <laughs> That's it, folks. We're not talking about masculinity at all. Uh, there's no masculinity. James Bond masculinity. I never heard him. <laughs> um. So one of the I first. Don't know him. <laughs> one of the first things I wanted to talk about was. Early on, they talked a lot about snobbery with violence as being one of the main characteristics of James Bond as a character. And I'm curious, do you think that that still applies? Because like in early Bond, part of his appeal was this high class taste and his snobbery and his ability to coolly inflict violence without remorse. I think it does in a, in a specific way. It he, he definitely is there, but the consequences are also there. Yes. And by his snobbery, he just looks more dumb and but he <laughs> learns the lessons. Right. Like so obviously Craig's Bond is still inflicting violence, right? These movies are not suddenly without violence. Okay, I just have to say in the end when when uh he's about to shoot what's his name? Uh, inspector mm-hmm. and he does it I was like you literally killed so many people without second thought why are you doing this I know. <laughs> like literally you just like look you don't even look at people and you're bang bang and yeah. then suddenly you're like oh no can I kill can him? I kill this what's her name says she doesn't like guns <laughs> um, it's a license to not kill <laughs> um, so obviously Craig's Bond is still inflicting violence. Arguably the violence is even more brutal than in previous movies. Yeah, I think that has a lot to do just with the time. Yeah. Um, but I wouldn't describe it as cool. Not cool in the sense of like, whoa, cool, but cool in the sense of like, he's doing it dispassionately. Yeah. I think that violence in these movies clearly takes a toll on him, not just physically, but also mentally. 
Well, think about the violence and versus like what's cool. Like the cool parts of like that James Bond, I don't think is the violence. I mm-hmm. think it's his car chases, him on the motorcycle, him parkouring. Yeah. Like that's the cool stuff. The cool stuff isn't necessarily the explosions and the and the death that mm-hmm. that he rains on people. Yeah. That's not the cool. It's just the violence. Well, by cool I mean the the sense of dispassion about killing mm-hmm. more so than like whoa cool. Um, but the, I think in previous movies, he, you know, he could dispense violence and it would have no consequences because there were no consequences for anything. Because he's James Bond. He would just reset at the end of the movie. Oh, he's fine now. Um, but in, in the Craig Bond films, like, this is clearly taking a toll on him, not just physically, but mentally, because he is worn the fuck out by no time to die. He, he's retired for real. Like, not just as like a revenge quest. And a house with so little, little walls. Yes. I mean, he must feel very secure. He must because I, I he's walking through that house. I just kept there are no fucking walls here. <laughs> the lights are off. The mosquitoes. <laughs> That's a really good point about the mosquitoes. Oh. Um, I he, bet there's tigers or something. Tigers not in Jamaica. Oh yeah, they're in Jamaica. I don't know. They're probably some type of animal you don't want to come <laughs> sleeping in bed with you. He likes it. Maybe they're friends now. Um. So he's he's retired for real in no time to die. He's just fucking done with the role of James Bond as 007. Um, but Variety's Todd McCarthy uh, said of Casino Royale that Bond is kind of taking a different thing here. He has sadism and humanity as opposed to <laughs> snobbery and violence. And I think this is a little closer to the truth, especially because it was said about Casino Royale and not the other Craig films. So in this one, or in, in Casino Royale rather, we see his sadism as potentially resulting from his humanity, right? He loses Vesper and he shuts off his humanity. I a la the Vampire Diaries. I love this. I, I read that and I was like, yep. Straight up. Like, you, can, you can hear in his mind going, turn, turn it off. As soon as he says, the bitch is dead. Yep. I was, so when that, when that line came up, I was like, shook. Mm-hmm. Like, like, I was like, it was such a shift that it yeah. felt really, um, like so out of character and I still I had a hard time like we were watching the next one with my husband and he he mentioned the line again and I still just felt like this doesn't seem right yeah so the book ends uh a bit differently um first of all Vesper dies by suicide in the book um way more clearly than she does in the movie like in the movie you know she doesn't accepted death. she did not fight for her life but in the in the book she dies by suicide um and he calls uh you know, he calls up MI6 or whatever uh, and says, this is 007 speaking. This is an open line. It's an emergency. Can you hear me? Pass this on at once. 3030 was, or 3030 was a double working for Redland. Yes, damn it. I said was. The bitch is dead now. Hmm. And that's how, that's just how it ends. Um, so there's this, this coldness yeah. uh, in, in his death. But I think that that in the movie, we really see that as spurred on by the loss of Vesper he's just dead inside when he says the bitch is dead now. That's not a line. Like the movies, you know, have done all kinds of horrible things with regard to misogyny, but the, the line, the bitch is dead now said with no like feeling whatsoever is so intense. It is. It's so intense. And as, as much like I'm, when I, when I watched all the films and I, and I think back on that, it just, it's that, like you said, that click point of, here's James Bond. Mm -hmm. And it just, it, it just, I think the Craig movies were done so well. Well, 
thought out well. Not all yes. of them were done so well, but they were thought out so well, and they really had a vision for who they wanted this bond to be. Mm-hmm. And I think that line is just so it stands out, and it's so it's just it ends up being like such a good line, yeah, because it hurts and it feels bad, especially like being mm-hmm. a woman, like feel it sucks. So Vesper was pretty capable, right? Yeah. Yeah. So like it like it just feels like another like can't have capable women. Mm-hmm. Um so it was it was a really thought out line obviously to use. Yeah. They didn't think of it, but I think that callousness shows bonds like the level that that bond has has sunk yeah. to rather than being just casual misogyny. Yes. It's purposeful. Mhm. Um, instead of paving the way for yet another disconnected and largely unaffected bond, Vesper's death in this line are the catalyst for his growth as a character. So the bond who dies in no time to die would not exist if it was not for Vesper's death and the cold rejection of his own humanity until Madeline Swan comes along. Mm-hmm. Again, Bond does not do the iconic name introduction until the end of the film. Because at that point, until that point, he is not the Bond we know. The Bond we know as Bond James Bond is the Bond who says the bitch is dead, not the Bond who is willing to leave his entire espionage life behind and live on the beach with his hot wife. Right? Yeah. That's a different person. He's James. (laughs) Oh, James. Oh, James. We did. I don't think we got a single James. No, we did. In uh, I feel like that was a pretty good impression. That was pretty good. Thank you. My destiny as a Bond girl is fulfilled. Um, so I think the the pain inflicted on Craig's Bond is also a form of sadism, Mm -hmm. but for the audience rather than for Bond himself. I don't think Bond is enjoying the majority of the pain that he goes through. Sometimes he is, but well, yeah. There's some. I I wonder about that. Listen. Listen, I'll talk about it later, but <laughs> listen. I don't know how you, I don't, he's, uh, yeah, we'll get back. Listen, uh, I, but I, I think that idea of sadism and humanity, I think the sadism is for the audience. The audience is enjoying watching pain be inflicted on Bond. We're just horrible people. What can I say? Uh, and <laughs> what, I, what I have to say is you that- You love a man covered in his own listen, blood. unfortunately, Daniel Craig as Bond, specifically as Bond, reminds me, far too much of somebody I know in like he looks too much like somebody I know in real life uh, to the degree that I cannot find Daniel Craig as Bond attractive. I can't. I, I can't do it. And it's, it is a tragedy it for is me. A tragedy. Uh, I, I accept in lieu of flowers, um, pictures of other hotties. Yeah. Um, so in the Craig Bond films, I think we have this widening definition of what acceptable masculinity can look like. Craig, unlike previous Bonds, is often injured physically and visibly, which gives him this additional sense of vulnerability that has been largely absent from Bond as a character. Um, more so, like in the in the Brosnan era, you kind of see him hinting at it, but it's not until Craig that we see him like beat the fuck up and then stay beat the fuck up. Yeah. Um, there is that potential for queerness that we mentioned earlier. He also has this greater capacity for caring that we see in both Spectre and in No Time to Die. Do we ever see him with a kid before this? I don't think so. I don't think we do. Um, which kids are easy to just pull that yeah pull that that tear out. Um. So we, we see that capacity for caring in Spectre and No Time to Die, as well as evidence of clear psychological damage over time. Uh, he feels human in a way that the previous Bonds did not, which actually does change the way that the film seemed to view masculinity. Because to be a man is no longer to be superhuman, it's no longer purely to be heterosexual, and it is no longer to be unbothered by the world. That's a radical shift mm-hmm. from previous generations. Um, the important word there is shift, not radical. Um, so... 
let's talk more about Bond's body, because while Brosnan's Bond may have been the subject of the erotic gaze from the camera, shout out to that scene in the shower, um, it is markedly ramped up in the Craig films, right? There's even a horny. Yeah. There's even a recreation of the iconic Dr. No scene where Honey Ryder comes out of the water in her bikini, except it is Bond himself in I his little shorts. I didn't realize that until I read. I was like, oh, my God, it's it that. is. It is that scene. And honestly, shout out to the costume designers for bringing back the short shorts. Agreed. You're the real MVP here. It's true. It's true. Um, a lot more time is spent with the camera moving over Bond's body in the way that we would typically expect from how the ca- camera would treat a woman's body. The camera loves Bond's body in these movies. Um, In I Know Where You Keep Your Gun, Daniel Craig is the Bond-Bond girl hybrid in Casino Royale. Lisa Funnel argues that Craig's Bond is in fact a hybrid of Bond and the Bond girl, Hmm. in part because of how the camera treats his body. He's both the subject of the story and objectified, and that impacts how we can read the violence inflicted on him in these movies. Hmm. Um, So this is a quote from that same essay by Lisa Funnel, who writes... Unlike the Bond film, which is rooted in the British lover tradition, Hollywood action films are notable for their use of a specific body-centered model of masculinity as heroic ideal. Susan Jeffords traces the development of this Hollywood heroic model through the iconic performances of hard-body heroes Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sylvester Stallone during the 1980s. The protagonist's exposed muscular torso, cinematically Hmm. metonymic... Sure. (laughs) Of the male body in action can be understood as canvas upon which the narrative, moral, and political dichotomies of the film are presented and performed. Jeffords argues that the hard body is a product of the Reagan era, virtually enveloping the ideals of, quote, strength, labor, determination, loyalty, and courage, unquote. Jeffords contends that the hard body is a recognizable collective symbol of the American national body and reinforces the theme of national survival. Despite its wounds, the hard body, emblematic of the national body, will persevere in its fight survival and defeat of the enemy so while it might be tempting to read the sexy way that the craig bond films treat his body it's not just about being eye candy right bond's body has always been sort of representative of the british empire and inflicting harm on it now actually leaves scars Mm -hmm. it speaks to a greater vulnerability for both bond and britain which complicates the idea of his masculinity and britain's place in the world so it's not not eye candy right it's it's not like clearly it's like look at look at this man's body mm-hmm. it's a hot body uh i am just wary of talking about the display of bond's body as some kind of like win for feminism or whatever it's a win for eyes it's a win for the people looking at it yeah. but that's not the same as like a progressive stance I mean, they still got the women in, in title scenes and yeah um things like metro this is and this is kind of a nuanced point but things like metrosexuality and just showcasing attractive male bodies are also marketing tactics Mm -hmm. so a man who is self-conscious of his body is a man who can be marketed to in the same way that a woman who is self-conscious of her body can be marketed to right yeah so when we're selling this idea we're using bond's body as the epitome of masculinity and it's like chiseled and like all of that kind of stuff we are able to sell products to men who don't look like that so while it's tempting to praise movies like this for equal opportunity eye candy, we should also be cognizant of the fact that there's really no pure motive here. How much do you think that that this um, the last movie really wanted to capture a female audience? The last movie? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Because, well, I don't know. Because I think that it was more... It, a lot of the things that I think would have made it, like, prime woman bait is the best way I can think to say this, <laughs> were not revealed in the trailer. This is true. So I think that it's more like they were trying to make a movie that can appeal to a wide variety of audiences where, you know, the, and like, of course women like James Bond, 
I like James Bond. Like I like these movies. Um, but you know, you always have that idea of like the girlfriend dragged along to the movies. Like it feels more like they were trying to capture that and make and, and, and increase that investment as yeah. opposed to um, baiting that kind of audience with, with the ads. Yeah. Um, so there's always another reason, right. For this kind of treatment of, of anybody's body. And since this franchise has always been about selling, selling luxury brands by associating them with peak masculinity, we can point the finger to that as well. Mm -hmm. It's not enough to just say, Oh, well, Bond's body was hot. Therefore these movies are better than their predecessors in terms of like, um, equal opportunity objectification, like objective objectification is still bad. Right. Like, yeah. and it, it's still a tool of capitalism to sell products. So I'm not going to be out here being like, yeah, more like, of course, yeah, more hot dudes. Like, yeah, yeah yes. of course. This is a win for us. Yes. But at the same time, like the, the definition of who gets to be a hot dude is so limited mm -hmm. and that's used to create insecurity to which products can be marketed. Um, so this is a quote from geopolitics, gender and genre, the work of pre-titled slash title sequences in James Bond films by Linda Ratchiopi. And Colleen Tremont, who writes, uh, Bond's body is pleasing to the eye, captivating viewers in ways similar to the Bond girls. The specularization of is extended in Casino Royale, where Bond's body is relentlessly and continually assaulted. In the now famous scene where Bond is tortured by Lashif, the specularization of Daniel Craig's desirable naked body is tempered by the gruesome reality of the possible possibility of genital disfigurement, serialization, and even death. In classic voyeuristic manner, the viewer is both attracted to and repulsed by the image on the screen. This attraction-repulsion dynamic parallels responses to contemporary British, European, or Western security threats, wherein citizens are simultaneously obsessed with and traumatized by global terror and the possibility of torture by terrorists. In true Bondian fashion, the national anxiety is overcome because Bond's body is able to withstand, for Britain and the world order, any kind of attack. Of course, at the same time that this focus on the body of Bond reinforces the ability of the West to repel terrorism and other threats, it has the effect of reinscribing the traditional gender order wherein men, specifically Bond, are the masters of international politics. So again, while it's tempting to look at the showcasing of Bond's body as equal opportunity sexy, which, like, it is sexy. Man, his body... He worked on it. Yeah. Like, he has a sexy body. He see everything except the junk. Yeah. It's also a representation of Britain, right? Bond's body is not just Bond's body. Bond's body is also Britain's body. Mm -hmm. In being scarred and battered, it is showing that Britain is vulnerable. But notably, Bond never succumbs to his injuries, right? He's always it's able wonderful. to overcome. He bears the scars and he recovers from them just as Britain recovers from threats against it. And as Ratchiopi and Tremont point out, it also situates the man's body as the master of international politics. It's less about whose body is exposed where and more about what that exposure is doing. And while Bond's body is certainly eye candy, it's also powerful and representative in a way that I don't think the Bond women's bodies are. They are just like in the opening titles. Yeah. Those are eye candy. Yes. Ana de Armas's beautiful dress. Eye candy. Yeah. Um, like it's not the same, right? The fact that M is covered up in power suits. Yeah. It's not the same. Um, We're still using masculinity as power. Yeah, exactly. And while the women of this chunk of the franchise are absolutely better than most of the preceding films, we have to consider them in context, right? Because better isn't necessarily the same as good. Uh, I will say that I absolutely love Paloma, who is Anna de Armas's character in No Time to Die. 
But as Beatrice Loyeza wrote, uh, pointed out in the No Time to Die review for Polygon, she almost feels focus tested to be yeah. the perfect, funny, competent, and messy arm candy for Bond. You like, I think, um, Loyeza points out in the interview that, or in the review that you can tell the part that Phoebe Waller Bridge, who's the creator of Fleabag, you can tell the parts that she had a hand in and it feels like stamped stamped for approval by Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Now that's not a knock at Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Again, I fucking love Paloma. That was my favorite part of the movie. Yeah. But it's acceptable in a way, you know, right? Like it, it's, it's again, feels focus tested to be accepted by audiences. Uh, and you basically could have cut her from the movie and made no meaningful difference to the story. Except for the fun. Except for the fun. Yeah. That's the, that's my main, one of my main criticisms of No Time to Die is that why would you introduce such an amazing character and restrict her to only one scene? I was so upset and I really feel like they just wanted to make uh, Knives Out 2 AU. I, I legitimately, works. if you told me that Daniel Craig was like, Ana de Armas was, would be, should be in this movie and they were like, why? What is she going to do? I don't know. Put her in it. I, I, I would believe that. Like, I would believe that. I would that believe happened. that. Because she literally, there was no reason for her to be there. No, she was amazing. Every moment she was on screen was the best moment of the do movie. Do you think she was faking it? Who? Uh, do you think that the, her character was actually, like, like that ditzy? Oh, I don't know. Because in the end, when she's, like, super competent and fighting, he's like, two weeks, huh? And she's like, about. <laughs> I'm happy either way. This It's true. I, I loved her. She was so great. Um... But there is more to it, too, especially when you start to look at M, Vesper, and Mathilde. Um, so from License to Thrill by James Chapman, Chapman writes, Bond is controlled by female authority, not only M, but also Vesper, who controls him in the purse strings and whose decision it is whether or not to stake him in Le Chief's poker game. It has been argued, especially by Tony Bennett, that it is M who endows Bond with phallic authority. The difference here is that the pistol with its huge silencer is a gift from a woman. Bond's arrogance may be seen as his reaction to the emasculation of his authority, especially when Vesper refuses to further to release further funds when Bond is apparently wiped out by Le Chiffre due to his own impatience, with prompt, which prompts his only angry outburst in the film. Bond is further threatened with, an, with emasculation by Le Chiffre, who makes both a literal and symbolic assault, assault on Bond's manhood, stating, there will be little left to identify you as a man. So we talked about this in the Pierce Brosnan episode, but the way that M is constructed and costumed is more masculine than any other female character in the series. Mm -hmm. There simply is not another person like another woman like M in, in the series. She wears power suits. She has her hair cut short and she bosses bond around in a way that is somewhat like a boss and somewhat like the irritated parent of a wayward child. I love it. Um, but it does feel as though part of her believability as an authority with an MI6 comes from her costuming and style. Like, she wouldn't be a believable authority figure to Bond if she wasn't more masculine than the other woman. She's a boss, babe. Yeah, she's a girl boss. Yeah, she's a girl boss. Girl yeah. boss M. Yeah. Um, it configures her as almost sexless. Like, she is not a potential object of desire for Bond for a number of reasons. The kind of paternal relationship or maternal relationship, the, um, the costuming, her age, like, all of those kinds of things are like kind of playing into the object, the fact that she's not an object of desire, but it's more than that. Right. Mm -hmm. It is specifically, I think the way that she is like sort of masculine, masculinized by the plot that makes her not an object of desire. Yeah. Um, and while Bond is the object of affection for Bond and is very feminine, she also controls him through his access to money. Right. When she doesn't give him more money, he gets angry. The angriest you see him in the film, even angrier than when Le Chief is literally destroying his penis. Um, he's, he's angrier about Vesper not giving him money than he is about Le Chief, like, ripping his dick off. I did not catch this, of, like, the anger um, 
of like the difference in uh, why he's angry about the money versus mm-hmm. like, you know, his dick coming off. Um, but you know what? I feel it. Mm-hmm. As somebody who has nightmares about losing access to my own money, I feel it. Money is power. It's stability. It's secure. It's feeling not secure. for him, though. I guess. Yeah. If this is literally just he wants to complete his mission and a woman is telling him no. It's true. And he's angrier about that than having his penis mutilated. But I still feel like personally, <laughs> I'm just like, yeah, those are don't two, take my money. Those are two completely different yeah. perspectives, yeah. though. Um, it is interesting because they're both kind of different forms of emasculation, right? But the one that really makes him angry is not having the shit beat out of him. It is a woman telling him he cannot have money. Well, he did laugh through the whole thing. Through the beating, yes. not through him being told yeah. he had money. He looked like he was ready to fuck Vesper up. Yeah, he was. he's laughing through the other one. That's what I mean. Yeah. Um, I find it interesting because Lashif straight up says there will be nothing left to identify him as a man, but that upsets him less visibly than Vesper, yeah. saying, no, you can't have any more money. That's where the old bond's coming. <laughs> but what I do like about that, this, this weird comparison here, is that the movie seems, the movie as opposed to the book, um, suggests that his lack of anger toward Lashif and the lack of seeking sexual fa- satisfaction to prove that he's a man sort of decouple the idea of his masculinity from his penis. So, like, in the book, his masculinity is in his penis, right? If his mm-hmm. penis is mutilated, can he have sex? Can he do his job? Is, is he, he even a man? Bond? Is he James Bond? In the movie, his penis is mutilated, but there's no, like, there's no questioning of whether he's a man anymore. But... Female authority is still a problem to Bond. He is in, he is emasculated by a woman saying, no, you can't have any more money, more so than he is by a man literally destroying his penis. Um, we could argue that it is just authority that is the issue and not female authority, mm. but most of the people yanking him around in his life are women. So can we really argue that it's just authority? It's I would I would say it's it's women because what we get in the end is a woman who is not doing that to him. Mm-hmm. Who is who is um I love I love her, but she very much is the submissive. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll do anything for you. Yeah, help me. I mean, he also hates Mallory, but Mallory fucking sucks. Yeah, so like, true. you know, it's it's. I think that's a totally different. That's a totally different dynamic yeah so. well I'm, I'm saying it with regard to authority like yeah, can we yeah. say he hates authority or he hates female authority yeah well he does hate authority but i also think he has a specific dislike for female yeah, authority what i'm saying yeah exactly so what i'm saying is is the anger he has towards mallory versus the anger he has toward vesper right is totally different yeah um so it, and it makes me feel like it is the female he's got authority. a pro- he's got a problem with girl bosses yeah you know he sure does. <laughs> and you know what? He, he may be better, but he's still James Bond. It's true. Um, this is an... And to be honest, does he still have a dick? Yeah. Are we sure? Yeah. Because I don't know how anyone survives that. I don't know exactly what he did, but they, I'm sure Maybe they, they gave recon- him a new one. They reconstructed it. Somehow. He's definitely not having kids. He did. He literally oh did, God, Mary. He did. He literally did. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how. It wasn't his. I don't know how. I don't know. Maybe because that's a lot to take. Yeah. Maybe because he is he's <laughs> balls of steel. He's super <laughs> he's super virile. I guess. He, he is James Bond. It's true. Uh, this is a quote from Geopolitics, G- Gender and Genre, the work of pre-title slash title title sequences in James Bond films, again by Ratchiapi. 
and Tremont. I apologize. I think I've said Linda Ratchiopi's name different every single time. <laughs> uh, anyway, they write, as suggested by the film's name, the title sequences... The title sequence emphasizes the game of international politics that Bond must master if Britain and the West are to remain secure. The sequence is dominated by floating images of roulette wheels and cards that become ammunition for guns and that pierce graphic figures of men. Unlike other Bond title sequences that privilege women's bodies as sex objects, threats, or victims of violence, Casino Royale's title sequence is populated almost exclusively by male images. We, we get only a glimpse of Vesper's face superimposed on the Queen of Hearts playing card. The erasure of the female form has the effect of extending the already hypermasculinized diegetic world of Bond because it reinforces the notion that international security is the purview of men. Men are both the chief threats to the global capitalist system and its chief protectors and defenders. So the absence of female objectification does not make something progressive or feminist. But it did feel good. But it feels good. It right? did feel good because... I thought about this a lot because I was so ready to not have a woman be on that title screen. Mm -hmm. Yes, James Bond's, the, the Bond girls are objectified through the movie, but no, not as much as they are through those titles. The yes. titles. I mean, it's just. They are literally objectified. Lewd. Yeah, it's lewd and it's, it feels like uncomfortable sometimes. Mm -hmm. And so to have that change, sure, it's not like, <laughs> that's a low fucking bar. Yeah. But it feels good. Yeah. Uh, even if Bond's body is now the site of objectification, which it is in the in the opening titles and throughout the movie, mm -hmm. that doesn't automatically mean that the treatment of women across the board is better. Mm -hmm. Now, I do think it is better overall, but I'm not going to give Bond the Bond franchise a whole lot of praise for creating dynamic female characters when they largely haven't. If you had not watched the other Bond movies and then you watched the Craig movies, I don't think you'd be like, yeah, those Bond girls, they're feminists. Yeah, the only character that really felt interesting to me was Paloma for that one fucking scene she was there. Um, yeah, I would agree with that. They are better. I liked Vesper a lot. Though. I liked Vesper. Uh, I found Madeline Swan super boring. <laughs> she is boring, but she seems like the perfect fit for Bond. Yeah. They, you know, the female characters are better, but I wouldn't say they're good enough. Yeah. And the treatment of the, like, progressive characters also leave some things to be desired we talked about nomi a bit already but even money penny who is now a black woman and for a while a fellow agent rather than just a secretary leaves a lot to be desired just so pretty to be clear i really like the change in money penny mm -hmm. i love the casting i love it when mm -hmm. she's on screen but the way she's treated in the film is still not great for a split second i thought she was going to be dating you Oh, yeah, I thought that, too. I think that was an intentional red herring. Okay, good. Uh, in Market Forces, James Bond, Women of Color in the Eastern Bazaar by Laurie Palmer, Palmer, Palmer talks about the opening scene of Skyfall, where Moneypenny is introduced as having her be inferior to Bond. He talks about her bad driving. Like, come on with the bad driving. I'm just glad he didn't say woman drivers, am I right? But like, come on with that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, their physical abilities are contrasted. Like her movement is very chaotic. His is very smooth and so on. Um, so this is a quote from that essay by Lori Palmer, who writes, um, such a dynamic plays out in Skyfall when Moneypenny joins Bond in Macau and in a callback to the bathhouse woman of You Only Live Twice, attends to the upkeep of Bond's personal grooming. She shaves him while kneeling between his legs. During this intimate interaction, his gaze drops freely to her cleavage, visible in the deep V of her red dress. Now that she is no longer a fellow agent, his license to look is assured. Her domestic... 
Her domestication in the scene can be seen as a reinforcement of, quote, racial and gendered hierarchies within an increasingly pluralized society in general and in post-colonial Britain more specifically, unquote. Therefore, the, through the traditional Chinese architecture of the Macau Hotel and its reframing of Naomi Harris's character, quote, within the conventions of the orientalized helper, unquote, oh, no, sorry, not unquote, orientalized helper, Skyfall effectively differentiates Moneypenny, unquote, from the other black women in the Bond series, but it also associates her with the location where her failure as an agent was born, the Eastern Bazaar. So I actually love this scene in Skyfall when Moneypenny shaves Bond. Full disclosure. On the surface, it feels like it makes Moneypenny subservient to Bond, right? She becomes a sort of handmaiden to him. She sure is holding the blade. But it's also literally him putting his life in her hands, right? Yeah. It's a show of trust and faith in Moneypenny, especially since she literally shot him in the opening scene. Which pays off in the end when yes. she becomes the one of the only people he does trust. Exactly. He is demonstrating when he when he says, okay, shave me. Like, he is demonstrating... <laughs> okay, shave me. <laughs> he is demonstrating that he trusts her with his life. Yeah. Um, that said, the exotification of the setting, the kneeling, the obvious sexuality of the scene are definitely telling us something, right? Um, I mean, it's money, Penny. You can't, you can't go you can't go a movie without being like, haha, they're going to fuck, but they right. don't. But, and this is a hill I will absolutely die on. I don't think that that has to be a bad thing as long as we get the necessary context from it. Because Bond and Pen Money Penny never have sex on screen, if they do at all, right? Do you think they do? I don't know. I, I think he's had sex with previous Money Pennies, but I think this Money Penny is too smart. I don't know. I really don't know, and I'm okay with not knowing. Yeah. Um, but they never have sex on screen if they do at all. But suffice to say that I simply do not think that the person holding the knife in a consensual, consensual sexual situation <laughs> is the one being dominated. I'm sorry. I simply do not believe that. <laughs> oh, my God. That's a really good way of putting it. Um, the reason that I think this is important is because I think Palmer is totally right here. The visual styling suggests submissiveness, right? The fact that Money Penny is black adds a racial element to this interaction, especially because she is serving a white man who is technically who's her superior at work. And even if the power dynamics of the relationship are a negotiated dominant sub relationship, that doesn't mean that there isn't criticism to be made of the treatment of Money Penny and other black women in the franchise. I have, let me tell you, it's flawed. Um, but as I said, I will die on the hill that in that interaction, Bond is not the dominant one. And, I mean, not to make a, a leap here, but like, given his role in the franchise, I, I know where you're going and I agree. I just don't think that Bond is the dominant one I, I in agree. sexual relationships. I so 100% They agree. want us to believe that, especially in the older films, but I simply do not agree. With how much that he gets hurt and like how we watch him like What get makes hurt? you think this is my first time? Exactly. I just, you know he does. More power to him, honestly. Yeah. Just, I mean, he has the control in that situation, to be honest. I mean, the thing, the thing with that scene is, like, he is putting his life in her hands. That can be hot, you know? I mean, of course, you have a whole, a whole thing for You it. have a whole thing for that. You got a whole thing. Um, so, it, like I said, I will die on the hill that in that interaction, Bond is not the dominant one. And that says something about this era of Bond films characterization of Bond's masculinity. While we did get some women on top scenes in the Brosnan era where, you know, they would have a woman on top and she wouldn't die. Whoa. Um, I think that that is quite different from woman shaves a man scenes. Even if the scene, Shave in, me. <laughs> even if the scene in question is only teasingly sexual rather than overtly sexual. So what I'm saying here is that a step forward in terms of representations of masculinity through this interaction, this potentially 
this the situation that you can read as a dominant submissive act that is sexually charged but not necessarily sexual because you can have dominant submissive interactions that are not sexual as well mm-hmm. um so you know while well well that says something about the characterization of bond's masculinity because he is not threatened by letting a woman hold a knife to his throat um it is also important to consider the racial dynamics and other forms of oppression especially in a franchise as fraught with the bond as as fraught with these kinds of things as the bond franchise so again I think that it says something interesting about his masculinity and about his role in sexual interactions that I don't think that he is the dominant one in that situation. I would so agree. But that does not mean that the scene is without flaws, right? Mm-hmm. I think the fact that Money Penny is a black woman who is undermined in the fact that like she's continuously compared to him and found wanting. Um, I think again, the, the, the scene with, the stuff with Nomi and like their, their kind of pissing contest about who gets to be the best bond or the best uh, 007. And then she gets her title regiven to like, but I think she's so much more competent than him. Oh, for sure. She's, just, you know, who's not falling efficient. for, hun- you know, who's not falling for every fucking honeypot in existence. It's true. Nomi. I mean, at least that we see. I, but I think Nomi's too smart for that. Well, she, she also, like he says, you're young and she's like, I'm smart. Yeah, I know what I'm doing. So I feel she's like the most efficient 007 to ever live. Probably. Um, so the thing, the thing that I want to make clear here is that a step forward in one direction is not a step forward in every direction. And if you're going to do this kind of thing, you have to be cognizant of what else is being said in, in interactions. So like, yeah, it does not seem to me as though, um, as though Money Penny is submissive in that scene, mm-hmm. right? It does not feel that way to me. First of all, I think it's her choice to shave him. Shave me. Shave me. (laughs) I think it's her choice to shave him. Second. I hope so. Second, like she's the one holding the fucking knife. Yeah. But at the same time, this is still a black woman in a role where she is in her career underneath him Mm -hmm. performing a service to a white man. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to say this scene is like, oh, God, it's so progressive how she holds the knife. Like, that's not what it's about. There's more to it than that. The progressive um, is the one with the knife always. <laughs> that's how it works. Yeah. That's written on the Statue of Liberty. Yeah, that's my favorite part of the Statue of Liberty. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this is a quote. Many here. people don't know that she's actually holding a knife. <laughs> uh, this is a quote from No Time to Die as a radical end to Daniel Craig's run as James Bond, which is by Alyssa Rosenberg, who writes, there's a long tradition of men discovering that women deserve equal rights only after fathering them. In a more sentimental franchise, Bond might have made up for his past failures with women by becoming a present father to one to one and a good partner to another. In this one, the only thing Bond can do for the women in his life is die for them. Bond may have been a soft misogynist rather than the sort of abuser making contemporary headlines, but for all its other silly touches, No Time to Die doesn't really go in for the cheap idea of as a third act conversion. So as a very last note on the Daniel Craig Bond era, I really, really liked No Time to Die. I loved it. I enjoyed most of all of it. And so a lot of times when things are too long, it's the middle that needs to be cut out, but then we wouldn't have had Paloma. So I like, think of Paloma still as the first act. Oh, I get, yeah. I think the end of that yeah, scene I guess is, you're is true. the end of the first act. I guess you're true. That's true. Um, the, that's, I mean, and I have, I have that issue with a lot of movies. They're too long, but like that. And then, um, I thought the plot, the plot was just kind of weak, yeah. but I did like the twist with the, with the stuff. You, he can't touch her anymore. Yes. That was, that was, that was really good. That was good. The, the plot was pretty weak, but it is a James Bond movie and probably a better plot than most. It's true. I could follow it. 
I that yeah, I could follow it. And, <laughs> and like I'm telling you, like the plants things was cool. They yeah. were they were capturing the plant moms. Yeah. Um, and it was it was I thoroughly enjoyed myself the entire time. Yeah. I so I really, really like No Time to Die, but here we go. Giving going to ruin it all. Giving Bond a daughter was kind of the laziest fucking way possible to get him to care about somebody. So, you know what this this reminds me of is um, I'm not misogynistic. I have a daughter. Exactly. Like, uh, I know we also saw him care for Felix, but <sighs> it's true love. But I would have loved to see him fight for Felix or some other person who isn't like by their nature needing of protection. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not bad. It would just felt so lazy. Like, but I did like it. I, yeah, like it was effective. It was, it was definitely effective. And like, I totally bought the interaction. Like, the groundwork was laid for it to work, right? It's, she was kind of a dumb kid, though. <laughs> My bunny. Um, but it's still, I felt like I saw that kid step out and I was like oh god I saw it and I was like oh my god here we go I'm into it I'm totally down with it um, I agree I think it's definitely like I'm not a misogynistic I have a daughter right um and but I still am like yes mm-hmm. yeah I like it I think that Rosenberg is right here that the conversion isn't cheap but I do think it's lazy mm-hmm. we definitely see throughout the Craig films that at times Bond has dabbled in sipping respect women juice to a degree that <laughs> previous Bonds have not right like he's clearly he's a little bit more respective than previous versions of Bond he has much less sex that's true um, that we see but again I just don't think it's enough for me to say that they're not misogynist or that they're pro- that they're progressive they're just, just James Bond baby yeah they're just better about it and I think in that way they're really reflections of our society yeah. <laughs> where we're like oh so progressive but like not actually though <laughs> yeah um, do you have anything else to say before we get into these final questions here? we are done with these movies. Well, I still got two more questions for you. So. Well, I'm just saying we're done watching the movies. Yes. I am glad that the last one I watched was my favorite. Really went out on a high note. I mean, it truly did. I did had zero expectations for it. I didn't think it would be that good. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't think it would be that good. I, I, I had a thoroughly good time yeah. watching No Time to and Die. And it was the first time we went back to the theater since quarantine. No. I hadn't been to the theater. Yes, you did. Was, we saw The Green Knight. Oh, that's right. It was the second time I had been to the theater. <laughs> First time in that one. Um, I had a really good time. I am. I want to go watch the short that they have um, about Daniel Craig's last times on the on the mm-hmm. set because, from what I understand, like I think that there's a clear love of James Bond with Daniel Craig. Like mm-hmm. he clearly enjoyed himself. He clearly loved the character. He was all in. Mm-hmm. And I think that really showed in his in his um, movies. Yes. I really like Daniel Craig. Um, and I'm glad that the movie, that this this era ended in a way where I was like, you really went out on a high note. That mm-hmm. was a good movie. Um, yeah, I actually think that. Well, okay. We've now watched 25 Bond films. Jesus Christ, we have. How are we feeling about James Bond? I'm okay, like, never watching those movies again. <laughs> At least... Most of them. Yeah. There's a, I would watch No Time to Die again. I would watch Tomorrow Never Dies again. Uh, I would watch The More Era when it's on TV. I would, I, so at work, we were asking what everyone was doing, and somebody was asking me, I saw, um, I have a podcast we're going to talk about the James Bond movies, and I saw the last James Bond movies, and it was really, really good. And they're like, oh, I haven't seen them. I go, don't 
<laughs> don't it's not worth it Mm-mm. it's not worth it i just think that the, the have somebody james bond is just so lame yeah have somebody hand curate a list of james bond films yeah. to watch for you don't don't just watch all of them especially because they're all so different yeah yeah it's but the daniel craig ones are um the the uh skyfall no time to die and casino royale are solid yeah i think specter is worth watching before seeing no time to die but it itself is just fine. You can just have somebody tell you what's going on because that's what I did because I hadn't watched Spectre yet and Missy told me like two things and I was like, all right, I can follow yeah, this. Yeah, you were pretty on board. Um, so now we come Here to we the, the most important question ever, which is the best theme of this era. For Casino Royale, we have You Know My Name by Chris Cornell. Here we go. Uh, for Quantum of Solace, we have Another Way to Die by Jack White and Alicia Keys. Uh, then we have Skyfall by Adele from Skyfall. And then we have Writings on the Wall by Sam Smith from Spectre. And then for No Time to Die, we have No Time to Die by Billie Eilish. I always, Mary's autocorrect once corrected it to Billie Relish. And now I can't, every time it's Billie Relish For a really long time, I thought her name was pronounced Elish. So, (laughs) Billie Relish. Uh, so what do we think? What's the best one? Well, my favorite one definitely is, uh, Another Way to Die. Uh, I quantum solace. So I don't. Here's my my take. I don't like any of them. See, and I, I find okay. That's my favorite, and then I would probably put the rest on the same level. <laughs> like I feel like each of them have their own thing. I thought the like Chris Cornell's was a really good mix of what he does with Bond. Like I thought yeah, it was a really good I agree. mix, um, and it really made sense. I thought Sam Smith's. I liked his because it felt kind of like. Both Billie Eilish and him felt really haunting, and I liked that. I would give Writings on the Wall by Sam Smith my least favorite of the entire Bond franchise. Really? I hate it. I I actively detest that song. Why? I just hate it. I don't, it sounds so, um, not sentimental, but like, it sounds so overwrought and so like, you were trying too hard. Well, it makes sense. I really dislike it. I, I don't have that much of a problem with it, but I do. I like, I enjoyed listening to it. So, um, I was upset the entire time it was on. I think Adele's is actually my least favorite in this. Group. Uh, I really dislike Skyfall as well. Like I, re- I just don't like Adele. Like I know unpopular opinion, but I really don't like her music. I find it dull. Biggest disappointment was the Billie Eilish. Yeah. Oh God. Her, her new album really feels like this, me, kind of, like this whole feel. So I'm not really surprised. Yeah. Um, Another Way to Die is definitely my favorite, but I don't like it. It's just like, like it it almost gets to being a song I I would really like. But there's something about like the chorus that didn't work for me. Um, It just it did not get there. I liked Jack White and Alicia Keys together. And I remember listening to I didn't know it was them. I was like, is this Jack White? And go, is that Alicia Keys? And I was really proud of myself that I could figure that out. Yeah. But I liked that. That one I liked. It's like, it's okay. It's. I think it's a middling Bond song. There is nothing like and it, the Madonna song, though. Yeah, it's a middling Bond song that so, that stands out by proximity to four songs I don't like. Yeah. Um. Now, now we have twenty five Bond themes to compare. Mm-hmm. What is your favorite one overall? The Madonna one. The Madonna one. I don't think it's the best one, but mm-hmm. it's the most fun that I have. And then that is true. What was the other one that's really good? Live uh, and let die. Yeah, that one probably is my second favorite. But the Madonna one. 
I really like because it's fun. Yeah, and I it's agree. different. But also like the lyrics as we went through the, the you episode. Can't beat. And we just pulled out the lyrics and I was just like, this is so good. You cannot beat Sigmund Freud analyze this. And the fact that it's Madonna makes yeah. it perfect. Like everything around that was just so good. So I can't say anything is better than that. Yeah. My favorite is Live and Let Die. Mm-hmm. I definitely have the most fun with Die Another Day. Mm-hmm. Um, my least favorite by far, Writings on the Wall by I Sam Smith. I couldn't tell you my least favorite because I probably don't remember it. Yeah. So. Um, a lot of them were un, like they were just forgettable. I think I think aside from writings on the wall, my least favorite would be Thunderball. I can't. And they call it Thunderball. I don't remember. How it, <laughs> it was pretty dull. I like Moonraker, <laughs> raking on the moon. Um, yeah, so that's it. I will say, and this is just a, a fun tidbit. There's a scene in the Princess Diaries when Lily and Mia like vote on like who's the hairiest Bond, who's the most attractive Bond. And I tried really hard to find it so that we could go through those questions together, but I could not find it. Well, I'm I am upset now. But I will tell you that, that I did find the part when they rank the, the hottest guys and Lily said that Pierce Brosnan is one of the hottest the hottest guys. Um, really? And also the best Bond. And Mia said, no, the best and hottest Bond is Timothy Dalton. Oh, interesting. I respect those opinions. I, yeah, res- I can I can respect that. I respect that. I don't agree with Bronze, Brosnan, but that's very... He's very much... He's the, He was the most charming to yeah, me. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. Except in this last one, um, they really let Daniel Craig be funny let, and charming. God, let him... It, it, and they put he's in, so funny they put in some really good funny bits like the magnets oh my god the magnets everything with that guy was really good yeah um so they they allowed i feel like daniel craig definitely had a lot more to say on this movie yeah um so that's it we're done with bond we're free <laughs> bye bye bond bye bye bond <laughs> um so that's it for Ready this. Ready for it all to go out my head. This, <laughs> I cannot tell you. I did not see myself as a person who would have opinions, like deep opinions or facts in my brain about Bond. But I do. There's a lot of things you probably wouldn't have thought you had. It's true. Like Vampire Diaries. Yeah. Oh, Jesus. One, oh, one day Jesus. we'll be done with that. We'll oh, celebrate. We'll God. Have a I'm almost done with season six. Oh, I better start that soon. Uh, that's going to do it for this episode. You can find us online at fakeygirlscast.com, which has all of our past episodes as well as sources, all that kind of stuff. You can also find a link to our Patreon, where for a small donation per episode, you can get cool rewards like access to our outlines in advance or mail or make us do an episode on a topic of your choice um you can also find a link to our radical radical you know podcast network (laughs) Um, penwich studio so check out the other shows on the network definitely do that next time we are going to be doing new moon oh joy can't wait uh and then good conversations and then dairy girls uh and that's going to that's going to cover up the rest of the year for us. Um, when we come back, we will know closer, like we'll know by dairy girls, I think what we're going to do next, but it is either going to be the vampire diaries or Hellblazer. Um, and I will give you a reading list for Hellblazer if you want to catch up with that. Um, but it will be one of those two, just depending on how much vampire diaries I get through. Um, so that's going to do it for this episode. Cool. Catch on the flip side where bond isn't, Because, spoilers, he is dead. He fucking died.